What's up everyone, this is Shiragam and I want to welcome you to the latest edition of the Hashishin brought to you by Rosin Evolution. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com or on their Instagram rosinevolution100. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's special edition, we'll be talking to one of the premier cannabis photographers in the world, Eric Nugshots. He's a super nice guy. We geeked out about photography and trichomes quite a bit, so definitely stay tuned for that. Much love to our community on Patreon. Their support has allowed us to begin to expand the conversation around cannabis resin in speaking to people such as Eric, who is not a hash maker, but someone who's deeply in tune with the trichome in a different way. I personally think it's important to try to look at things from as many perspectives as possible. So if you want to help us keep growing, keep expanding the conversation, check out our community on Patreon. The link to it is in our bio on Instagram. If not, it's patreon.com backslash the hashish in that's the hashish inn our community members get perks this month some of our members received commemorative seeds from the homies at manifest destiny seeds you can follow them at maryland underscore masher thank you guys for the hookup as always a big shout out to our sponsors rosin evolution they have all your rosin needs covered whether they're press bags pre-presses wash bags parchment visit them at rosinevolution.com or on instagram at Rosin Evolution 100 and use the code THI, the number 710. That's THI 710 all together. It saves you 5% with Rosin Evolution on your entire purchase. And if you need a rosin press, you want it to be high quality and affordable, and you don't ever want to worry about buying another one, visit our homies Low Temp Plates on their website lowtemp-plates.com that's l-o-w-t-e-m-p or on instagram lowtemp.plates use the code t-h-i to save five percent on your entire order with low temp plates as well and for those of you that are interested in their new 75 gallon commercial washing machine for our listeners and as far as i know our listeners only use the code t-h-i standing for the hashish in to save $250 off the unit. It's made of stainless steel from top to bottom. It's made specifically for agitating cannabis and it'll come in at an unbeatable price, especially considering the high quality, something that low temp plates takes pride in, giving you the most bang for your buck. Again, visit them at lowtemp-plates.com. Use the savings code THI to save 5% on all their gear or use the letters THI to save $250 off their new 75 gallon commercial washing machine that go on pre-order on the 1st of October. A personal shout out to Joe Itza from Long Island Quartz, always keeping me stocked with Hashco swabs. They're super helpful in helping me clean the deep custom banger that he also hooked me up with. So thank you, Joe. Follow him at Joe Itza. That's J-O-E-I-T-Z-A. There's a link to his glass and his swabs from there. Thank you for listening. And I certainly hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am beyond stoked to be here with Eric, better known as Eric Nugshots. You can follow him on Instagram at Eric, that's E-R-I-K dot Nugshots, or on his other Instagram, which is Nugshots. What's up, Eric? How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. I've been really excited to talk to you. I'm glad that we finally got to do this. I reached out a little while ago, and I, I think it took up a little 
time for you to kind of warm up to the idea about doing it. So I appreciate that again. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little introverted. I don't do these a lot, but kind of had a couple of them this last week. So I thought, you know, let's keep the ball rolling and, uh, and here we are. So I'm stoked to be here. Yeah. Likewise. Stoked to have you here. And it's funny that you mentioned the other interviews because I've seen that you've been kind of active on what I'll call the cannabis media circuit at this point. And is that a little weird for you being someone who is somewhat introverted? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't post a lot on Instagram. I'm sure people, I mean, people ask me all the time, like, you know, why, why don't you post and it? Introversion is a, is a big factor in that. But yeah, I mean, I didn't really plan this week. I mean, I, I reached out to you after, after all these other ones kind of happened to fall in the same, same timeline um, and just, you know, kept keep the momentum going, but it wasn't, wasn't really planned. It just kind of happened to all fall in the same, same time. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure you're a busy guy and I know you end up traveling a lot to do shoots and stuff. So you probably don't have a lot of time to do this stuff. Yep. I mean, it's, I, I guess I could say I have time on the road going to, cause I like to drive just, it, it's a lot easier. I like to camp so it can kind of kill two birds with one stone, like camp in the cool spot on the way to a shoot. Or sometimes I get to camp out on the farms, but cell phone service is really spotty driving through a lot of these, you know, a lot of these farms are out in the middle of nowhere or got to go through the middle of nowhere to get there. So yeah, <laughs> definitely <laughs> tricky, tricky finding a, a good couple hours to, to sit down and get an interview done. Yeah, I'm sure, man. And you know, when you got into photographing uh, commercially or I guess you could call it pro. Did you ever imagine this being part of the gig, you know, kind of having a, a being more of a public figure than you imagined? I mean, I didn't even expect any of this to happen. I mean, when I, photography has always been the, a hobby of mine and just, I, I never even expected ho- photography to be a career choice. It was always just kind of something I did on the side. I was really into computers for a while. I thought that was going to be an avenue. I thought potentially business. Uh, I actually went to school for mechanical engineering. Only lasted about a year and a half, two years before I dropped out because I couldn't handle the math. I'm definitely kind of engineering minded, but the math is a big disconnect for me. Just can't, never been able to do math. And then when the cannabis thing kind of started happening, it was a real big hobby for the first five or so years. And then kind of saw the way the industry was going, decided to jump in and try and make it a career. And uh, I'm super stoked that it, it paid off really rough there the first couple of years. But, you know, now we're here. And, uh, you know, I definitely didn't expect the, the notoriety either. I mean, it's, it's really cool. I wouldn't say it's something that I necessarily enjoy. You know, I, I try and get back to everybody. You know, every, there's so many DMs now, it's impossible, but I still strive to do that. You know, it's sometimes it's a lot of pressure, but I think I put a lot of pressure, on, like a lot of that pressure on myself. Um, I don't think it's too big of a deal, but, uh, but yeah, I never expected it to, uh, to get to this point, but I'm super thankful it has. Yeah, that's cool, man. I, funny enough, you know, I saw a post recently, I think maybe you reposted somebody else's where you were shooting somewhere in Bend, I think maybe for Highland Provisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you added a little comment there where you said that you felt much more comfortable behind the lens than in front of it. And <laughs> we were talking about that before we started the interview. And 
you know, it, it must be a weird feeling where people now know you, like you said, you have that notoriety and what does that feel like? I mean, I guess in your sense, it, there's, it's a little weird in the sense that you are behind the camera. So what you're known for is your photographic work, mm-hmm. but still within the industry, I'm sure people know, you know, who you are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really weird. Like going into a grow now it's, it's, people people be like oh we're so so happy you're here it's 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 almost like i don't know how to describe it it's like sort of celebrity but i don't really like that side of it like uh people be like oh it's so happy or so great to meet you and like tell me how they followed me for so so long and like it's cool but like i just like being under the radar and i like doing my work and producing quality content and uh I don't know. I could do without the celebrity side, but you know, it, it, it also affords me a lot of opportunities and, you know, I, super thankful for that side as well. But um, yeah, I, I'm definitely awkward in front of the camera and, and prefer to be behind it and just in my own zone and quiet and um, yeah, just kind of be behind the scenes. Of course. Yeah. There's good and bad with everything, right? Like you said, you know, it, it provides Definitely. opportunity, but it also creates a, a weird dynamic where you feel sounds like a little uncomfortable with people like being like, Oh, there's Eric <laughs> nug shots. You know? Yeah. And like, well, then going back to that story the other day from, from Sam at Highland, like, you know, he'll just put the, the camera in my face and like, you know, it's, it's a story. It's like people do it all day, but like, I just didn't know what to do on camera. I just like pointed at the nug and like, luckily he panned away really quick, but, but yeah, just, <laughs> being behind the camera is better for me. <laughs> yeah. You're there to do your gig, you know? So let's talk about that a little exactly. bit. I've been especially excited to talk to you because as I was telling you a little earlier, I'm, I'm into the craft of photography. I, you know, went to school for it. I don't currently practice or do anything outside of like my own, you know, family life, but I love photography and I, your work is like this intersection of the two things that I love, right? Like the craft of photography and the craft of cannabis. So um, that's really why I'm really super excited to be here with you. Like, do you feel similar? Do you feel like excited to mesh two things that you're passionate about? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's like when I first got started in cannabis in general, I, I got started probably about, started smoking about 19 years old. I was just before college. And I remember getting different strains and like seeing the the different smells and the different effects more so the smells at that point because I was still getting into cannabis in general but then the first time I actually shot uh, a strain was we got this GDP it was just dark purple and smelled insane like berries and I think my my friend at the time my roommate said it smelled like like killing a unicorn or something like absolutely insane and uh i just had to shoot it and uh got everything set up ended up struggling with the the depth of field i couldn't get everything in focus that i wanted to and and that kind of sent me down the rabbit hole of focus stacking and figuring out macro and and what it takes to shoot macro photography but in kind of doing that like getting in early on in my cannabis smoking it's been really cool to kind of grow both of those at the same time. Like the photo side has allowed me to see like come into grows 
that, you know, your average smoker just doesn't get to see and kind of get to see an inside look at the industry. And I feel super lucky because all these farms I get to see, they're bringing me in when the flowers are at their peak ripeness and everything looks as good as it can. Like sometimes people will schedule a shoot and then they'll say, you know, "Eh, this round's not looking as good as we want. Can we do next time? So I really get to see the best of the best of the industry. And I feel super thankful to, to, to see that. And I mean, the same thing on the hash side, I've gotten to work with a lot of insane hash makers in the industry and just, it's, it's a very similar thing. They, the, when I get to shoot their, their hash, it's some of the best, you know, they've ever done. A lot of hash makers are kind of, you know, iffy about getting their stuff shot <laughs> in macro because it, it shows off everything. Like you, you can't see it with your own eye until you get it under the macro lens and then you, it, it really puts your hash to the test. Like, is it as clean as, as it, you're saying it is? And a lot of the time it is like these, the hash these days is insane. So, so yeah, it's, I'm super thankful to, uh, to come up with both sides, the, the smoking and the photography at the same time. It's made both great, made both, both sides better. Yeah, that's cool, man. And it's also cool. Like you said, that you get to see the best of the best. I mean, people obviously want to show off their best. Right. And so that's mm-hmm. what you get to see because you're the guy making the images. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> you brought up macro photography and just like with the hash and, and the cannabis, typically when we talk on the podcast, I want to try to break it down with people who might not be familiar with you know, photographic terminology. So in essence, macro photography, I made an attempt of making a definition and I just want to see if you agree or disagree is essentially a type of photography that enables you to make an image of something really small and see it in a way in which the human eye is not capable of doing. Yeah, that is a hundred percent true. And not just the human eye, like cameras too, like with, with the focus stacking, you're, you're extending the ability of your camera. So when you get really up close with macro, in order to achieve the best sharpness in your picture, you have to set your f-stop lower uh, the closer you get. So when you set your f-stop lower, you're getting less in focus in every shot. But in doing so, you're maximizing sharpness. So you basically have to take hundreds of pictures moving the camera through all those, uh, those focus points. And then you combine them together in the computer and you get a much deeper depth of field in your photo than you could actually physically shoot at a particular sharpness with your camera. And then it gets way beyond what you can see with, with your eyes or your eyes through like a loop or something like that. Right. So what you're saying is, at this point with the technology, especially with the digital editing capabilities, and we'll definitely talk about stacking images, but you're able to create an image which otherwise could not really exist in a way. Like you're, you're making yeah. a composition of, of tons of hundreds, possibly even thousands of photographs at time that yeah. all go together to make one image at times. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's almost like 
like people are familiar with the the panorama mode on on their phones it's it's a similar kind of thought process you're getting you're using technology to capture more than you could capture in a single photo um it's not something that you can like see with your eyes you can't see i mean i guess you kind of can see 180 degrees but you you're really only focused in the first you know whatever 50 degrees in front of you wherever your eyes are looking but you can kind of see out to the sides but with a panorama mode you can see it's all in sharp it's perfectly sharp from left to right it's the same kind of thing with with stacking you just you're pushing the abilities of of optics with technology right and you know i wanted to talk about something that i feel is like kind of maybe a misconception or somewhat of a common myth that the camera is the most important part <laughs> to making a good photograph, especially in the case of macro photography. Yeah, that's, that's the number one question I get in DMs or in comments. People are like, what camera do you use? And my favorite way to answer that is it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> with, with macro, the lenses and the lighting are way more important than the camera. I, use, I, I upgraded my camera couple years ago from 18 megapixels to 50 megapixels and I still use the same lenses it's just I'm able to capture that light a lot more so in a sense the camera does matter but the lenses and the lighting are are way more important than than the camera body itself you could put any camera body with these lenses and still see the trichomes but you need you need the proper proper lenses to, to focus the light that close and then you need bright enough light in order to get the camera settings proper so you can uh, not get vibration and you're, you're getting enough light everywhere in there. Uh, it's all balancing f-stop exposure, ISO, and the flash power to, to kind of get the best picture possible or to get the best source images so you can stack those pictures as good as possible. Right. Yeah, so, you know, it's, this is not a photography show, but since we're talking to one of the... <laughs> premier photographers and cannabis in the world, I would say. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like, why, why is it that the lens is so important? Well, the, with macro, it's, it's really specialized. Like, you can't, you can't just go buy a camera at the store and immediately start shooting trichomes. I mean, you can, if you wanted to get started with macro and you don't want to buy a dedicated macro lens, you can get what are called extension tubes. And they basically just move the lens, whatever lens you're using, away from the sensor a little bit more. And if you think about how the light travels through the lens, it basically casts a, an image onto the sensor and the lens is designed to fill the sensor completely. So when you move that lens away from the sensor, you're basically, think about just move, taking a projector and moving it back from the screen. You're going to be projecting a much wider image and your sensor is basically collecting a smaller area of that image. So you, you can get pseudo macro, but then your, the light that's getting transferred through the lens is less on the sensor. So you have to expose, or you, have to, you have to up your flash brightness to compensate for that. Getting really technical, but that's, macro lenses are, are the best thing you can, you can do just, just to maximize quality. But then it's, it's a specialized component. Um, which comes with specialized you know, other specialized tools needed, like uh, the Canon MPE 65 millimeter 
is the macro lens that I use for most of my stuff. And it goes from what's called one-to-one, which is whatever you're seeing in real life is the same size on the sensor. So then it goes all the way to uh, five-to-one, which is whatever's showing up in real life is five times bigger on the camera sensor. And that lens doesn't have a focus ring. So in order to focus it, you have to physically move the camera forward and back, which requires another specialized piece of equipment, which uh, I use the, the stack shot. It's made by a company called Cognosys, and it's designed to just move the camera forward and back really precisely. So depending on the magnification you're at and f-stop you're at, you have to tell it how far you want it to move between pictures. And it varies depending on magnification. But basically, once you get it all programmed, you just press start. And I just walk away (laughs) to limit vibration. And it'll take a picture, move however long I programmed it, sometimes down to one to two microns between pictures if I'm using microscope lenses. And then it'll just go through capturing wherever I start the front of the the focus point all the way through, you know, everything in the picture that that I want to, or that I programmed it to capture. Sometimes it takes 15, 20 minutes to, uh, (laughs) to go through and capture one picture. And then I'm left with hundreds of pictures that I then have to throw into the computer and, and stack on that side. Yeah. So I feel like there's so much to unpack there. Let's talk about the, the brightness of the lens that you, you've referred to, right? So bright, I guess in this case, just because I'm a little familiar with photography is sometimes referred to as big glass, right? Glass that's able to open up really, really wide. Essentially, you're able to use almost the entirety of the lens to get a brighter image. Yes. Yeah, so in, in normal photography sense, yes, that would, that would be the case. But when, okay. when, you, when you get into the macro mode, a lot of stuff that applies to normal photography kind of gets thrown out the window. Okay. Um, so like on, on, let's say like a big, big glass lens, like let's say the first thing that's popped into my head is like the Canon, I think it's an 80 millimeter. It goes like to 1.4. It's huge chunk and of glass. In, and in this case, the, the lower the number, that 1.4, the bigger the glass, right? Correct. The bigger the opening, the, the aperture, the bigger, right. more light can come through the lens. So in, in that case, if you're shooting wide open, you have a super shallow depth of field. Like that'd be what people use for like portrait lenses. You get that really soft background, that bokeh. And if you want more in focus, you just stop, stop down. You go up to like F11 or F14 or whatever, and then you get more of the background in focus. But in macro, it doesn't really work like that all the time because you run into what's called diffraction, which means it basically softens the image. So you do get more in focus, but it's not sharp. It just looks kind of soft. Okay. So, so when you get beyond, when you get close, I don't know exactly where it starts setting in because it's like, it's a gradient. It's worse the more zoomed in you get. But I'd say around one to one, you, you got to start finding the sharpest f-stop. And then that's where stacking comes in because you once you find that sharpest point, you're pretty much limited to whatever depth of field you're getting at that perfect sharpness. And then you basically have to stack from that point on if you want more in focus. Or you stop down and then you get that diffraction softening. And it's it's like it's a classic problem. People 
uh, newer macro photographers will reach out to me all the time and be like, why is this so soft? And my first guess is always diffraction. And I'm like, got to read up on diffraction. Uh, it's going to solve all your problems, but it's like, that's where the rabbit hole begins. And then once you get, once you get diffraction, you start seeing all these other crazy optical terms like airy disc and, um, I can't even remember all of them, but it's, it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I don't even understand yeah. it all completely. I bet, man. And you know, that's so interesting just to hear how like going from one type of photography to a different type of photography, it, it really changes the technical challenges. And, and like you said, there, there's a different understanding that you have to have. And, you know, if uh, somebody that hears this, it helps them figure out why their pictures all look so diffused, then that's great. <laughs> well, diffusion is another one. That's, that's another thing that I tell people to do all the time with the lighting. So whether it's using a softbox, just, just something, something to make the shadows not as harsh. Like I always tell, tell people like sunny day versus cloudy day on a sunny day, you're going to have super distinct, harsh shadows. It's like a, it's a line where it goes from shadow to sunlight on a cloudy day all those shadows are softened because the sunlight's passing through that cloud first and it's, it's diffusing all the light. You're basically getting light coming from one side of the cloud and the other side of the cloud at the same time and crossing and you're getting really nice soft shadows. So that's basically what I'm trying to do with diffusion, just create soft shadows. And you don't have to get crazy soft boxes and stuff. I mean, it, it helps, but I've shot with like, just piece of paper in front of my flash in the past, maybe like a foot away, you don't want the paper right on top of the flash because then it's not, it's still going to be a pinpoint of light coming through the paper, but you basically want to just diffuse that light a little bit. It's going to, it's going to make your pictures a lot better. And same thing goes for like, if you're shooting in a grow room, your grow lights, it's a very small pinprick of light unless you're diffusing it in some way or like LEDs are like semi diffused because it's coming from a lot of different areas. But, but yeah, if you turn your shoot, shooting your grower with diffused light, not with the grow lights on, it's going to be a lot better. Yeah. So let me ask you, this brings up an interesting question is when you go and you shoot, I know that you mostly essentially work with like particular like branches right? You're not going in and you're not mm -hmm. shooting in the grow room. You're not adding all the variables of these lights to your lighting situation. Correct. Yeah. I, I like to go into the grow room, find the best shooting subject and clip it and bring it into an area where I control the light. And that's just anywhere else in the grow room, not in the grow room. <laughs> and I mean, it, I, my, I use a flash so I can overpower pretty much any light. Like I can shoot in a, in a room with the lights on, but the flash is so bright. If you take a picture at the right settings without the flash on, it's just going to be black. So yeah, take it out of the grow room. I've tried bringing my flashes into the grow room and I can overpower the grow lights, but only in that zone that I'm shooting. And then because my white balance is set for my flash, the plants or anything else, the wall in the background is going to be a completely different weird color because of the grow lights. They're a different temperature. The flash isn't reaching the back corner. You know, it's, it's, it's really tough to shoot 
in in a grow room with the lights on. If if you can turn the lights off, bring a flash in there, then it, it, you know your lighting is going to be good. But um, trying to overpower the uh, the grow lights with the flash doesn't always work that great. It's easier to get it out of the grow room. Right. And you talked about selecting the branch that you wanted to work with, which that's nice on its own, just being able to go into a grow and find what you like and have them pick it. But how do you go about that? Like, are you scoping these? Like, are you scoping the trikes first or? Uh, Not really. I mean, I scope them out with my eyes usually. So it depends on what we're shooting. If a lot of the time growers want me to do a, a full 360 live stock. So in that sense, what I look for is just general evenness because I'm going to be shooting it from 360 degrees. So, so the number one thing I look for is a, a straight branch because it's got to rotate, it's got to spin, it's got to it's got to look straight. If it kind of if you pick a side branch and it kind of curves up, it can look weird when it spins. It kind of has like a, a banana si- like style look to it. Like one side will kind of pop out as it spins around. So straight up and down vertical shot or a vertical stock is what I look for most. And then just, uh, I also look at the very tip of the cola. So it's got to look semi even cause I like to, I like to balance it. So it spins around the very top of that, the very tip of the cola. So if the very tip of the cola is like a little curved or it has an extra growth sticking out on one side, um, it's not always ideal for a spin Sometimes those are more ideal for macros, but a lot of the time I'll find a perfect stock for a 360 spin and then I'll cut the top off of that once I'm done shooting the 360 and I'll look in on that one for my macro shots. Sometimes I'll get to go back into the grow room and I'll pick out one specifically for macro if I'm looking for something particular. But in that sense, I'm usually just looking at like just like the shape of bracts, if, if I see something that I think is going to look good up close, I kind of, I can kind of spot it with my own eyes. I don't need a loop or anything just because I've done it so much, but that's not always true. Cause you know, sometimes trichomes are popped and it, sometimes you got to go back a couple times, find a new sample. Although more, more than just finding a new sample, you just rotate the sample you got and find another section on it. Cause there's, so many trichomes to choose from. Usually you can find a, an undamaged section just by rotating them a little bit and finding another leaf sticking out the side or something like that. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, enter trichomes. Let's talk trichomes <laughs> a little. Cool. You know, it seems like the perfect subject matter and challenge for someone who's doing macro photography. Yeah, they uh they are tricky. <laughs> I mean, they're tricky in a lot of different ways. I mean, first of all, just being so delicate, they've got to survive, you know, months in the grow room. They got to survive, you know, workers plucking leaves or, you know, wind or getting rubbed up against. I mean, that's another big factor that I look for when I'm picking. Like I got to, I'm not going to pick one that's right in the aisle that may have gotten rubbed up against. I try and pick ones that are kind of out of reach that might have less you know, contact during that, that growth cycle. But then on the other side of, of it, just shooting macro in general of things protruding from a surface is really difficult because when, 
see, how do I explain this? <laughs> this one, this one is a lot easier to explain with, with visual cues. Basically, when, when you have something, picture a trichome sticking directly out from a leaf surface and I'm racking through the focus on it. As like the head itself is going to come into focus first, as I move that focus down to the leaf, that trichome head is now out of focus. And that out of focus blur is blocking detail on the leaf surface because it's sticking so far out from it. So if you were just shooting like a rock or something with basic texture, it's a lot easier to stack, especially super close up because there's not a lot of changes in depth. But trichomes are not that. And some are way long on the stock, so they're sticking further out from the leaf surface, which blocks more detail. It's, it's a really interesting challenge, but I love it. Uh, and with cannabis, it's like, it's so diverse that, you know, you're not, it doesn't feel like I'm shooting the same thing every time, even though I kind of am. There's so much variance in trichomes with the color and the size. And I mean, it's, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years now and that's, it's still a blast. (laughs) Yeah. That's really cool to hear. Actually. I was looking through your Instagram and you had an interesting point where you said that everything that you see inside a trichome depends on the angle that you're looking at it from. Mm-hmm. Could you expand on that point a little? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I guess the, this one is also a good one with a visual cue, but uh, basically trichome is a, a, a big bubble. Basically it, it's like, like in, if, if, if a drop of water, you you can see what's behind it if you look through it. Trichomes are very similar, except they have cells in the base of the head that refract through the head if you look at it from the top down or from kind of a side angle. It's basically, trichomes are just magnifying glasses. So everything that's around them, because they're they're spherical, everything around them is refracted. So you kind of have to picture it looking at, you kind of have to go in understanding that it's refracting everything around it and think about it in terms of, of that. And the other thing is everything, if you're looking directly through a trichome, what you're seeing is upside down and backwards because it's acting like a lens. So you have to flip that in your head, first of all, and then understand if there are any, uh, if you're getting any of those secretory cells refracted through it, if you're getting like if you're looking at it from a side angle, you might be seeing the leaf, the other side of the, that leaf, upside down and backwards through the trichome. Like there's so much going on. Like I'm still learning, and I've been seeing trichomes up close for for years and years now, and it's it's always a learning experience. There's always something new and weird going on that we're trying to figure out, figure out what's what's happening. Yeah, it's exciting, man. <laughs> it definitely is. I don't know if that explanation was was good though. <laughs> well, I think you you touched on some points that I also wanted to talk about, which kind of going hand in hand with that question is again studying your work and and looking at some of the things that you were posting. One of the most interesting, or I guess, important things to understand when looking at trichome photography at that scale is that you're going to be 
always seeing four things when you look at them, right? One of them yep. being the reflection of the flash on the surface of the heads. Yep. Then, like you were saying, the refraction of whatever is directly behind the trichome. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the surface texture of the waxy coating of the head. Yep. And the last thing being the magnification of the cells inside the base of the trichome where it's attached to the stock. And you went on to say that trichome photography is cool, but it's much cooler when you actually understand what you're looking at. So having looked at that and, and processed that and looking at your images, you see them in a different light. hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you nailed it there. <laughs> um, I mean, one other thing I can add is like having seen that as a photographer, looking at other photographers' trichome pictures, you can kind of see what their lighting setup was and you can kind of start to unpack what how they set the picture and what's what's going on, how it's being illuminated. Because there's a lot, like if, if, if you change the lighting, there are different things that can be illuminated. And things can look totally different. Like the, the surface texture is something that you don't see a lot because of just the way that, that I'm lighting up the scene. And if you change that light, maybe light from behind or light from the side or try and you know remove that, uh, the reflection of the light, you can see other different things. And, and that was another thing that I thought was super fascinating with doing some, some of those macro spins is you're only with with a with a normal stack you're you're only seeing one point of view and you're inferring what else is going on but you can actually rotate it and see the same scene from a slightly different angle and other things get illuminated it really helps put into perspective what's going on like i was wrong with a lot of guesses i had thought of what was going on until i started spinning them and uh and that was where it really became clear of like, it, they're all lenses and you're not, you're not seeing what you think you're seeing uh, with like, especially the color, like, like amber heads is, uh, is a misconception, I, I feel like. And I could be wrong because, you know, I, I haven't, I want to do more of like shooting the same plant at different stages and seeing how the trichomes develop depending on how long or how, how mature they are on the plant. That's something I don't really get to do because I'm always coming in and shooting the trichomes at, you know, the finished stage. So, so yeah, so, so rotating it and seeing the trichomes from a different angle really helps put, put what's going on into perspective. Yeah. And anybody who has not checked out that video that you made, the one that you were referencing when talking about trichomes being clear, but maybe appearing not to be, through certain angles or like you said, certain, well, yeah, I guess angles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at it from, from an angle where you're going to see those, the, the secretory cells in the base of the head with, if those are visible in the head, when the, at that angle that you're looking at it on though, then it's going to be, I mean, if those secretory cells are clear, then you're going to see like this kind of, I don't know. It's like a, checkerboard pattern almost but it's it's all clear you get a kind of bunch of different light refracting it doesn't look like a checkerboard but you see there's like texture and there's stuff there it's not clear but when the plant gets to that you know its final maturity those those cells start to amber out 
if you still look at the trichome from an angle where you can see those secretory cells and they're amber, that head, the whole head looks like it's amber. Right. Yeah. That's one of the most fascinating things I've seen in a while. And I was saying, you know, if you haven't seen that video, you should definitely check it out because it really challenges that notion of trichomes turning uh, a, a particular color. But then again, you have weird exceptions with like your last post where you have these splotchy mm-hmm. purple heads, you know, where like it's not even the whole head. It, it just looks like it's like these little splotches of it, you know? Yep. And I, I mean, from, from what I can see in the pictures, because that's all I have to go on just what I'm observing and, the, you know, it, it, having a wide kind of database to pull from those observations is kind of what, where I'm drawing these conclusions from. But, but yeah, those, those pinks in the heads, it doesn't look like it's that, cause it could, it could, it shows up way earlier on. It doesn't look the same as the, that, that ambering, the ambering, it looks like it's the whole cell. Uh, whereas the pinks, it looks like it's just maybe a section in the center of the cell. Cause it's, it's the whole head isn't pink. It's like this polka dotted thing. And then actually I, I found a couple other pinks in the heads that are different than that on some pictures. I was just looking through trying to find some other stuff uh, in the last couple of days. And I found uh, some Skittles trichome heads that it actually looks like the, the center of the stock where it meets the head. Those, it, it, I don't know if it's three or six cells, but it looks like a little orange slice. If you look in the very center of the trichome top down, it looked like those little orange slice cells were turning dark purple. It didn't have the polka dotted look of all the secretory cells. It was just a couple cells in the very center. And so there was another different color form of trichomes that can come up. And, and that wasn't predominant over the whole plant either. It was like a little cluster in the bottom of a leaf that had them. And uh, I had completely forgotten about that expression of color in the trichome heads um, until the other day. Yeah, that's so cool to be able to have, you know, essentially this resource of images that you can go through and and find cool stuff, maybe unusual stuff like this, even when you're not, you know, working on it at the time. And I'm curious, how often have you seen these purple or colorful expressions before the trichome has actually reached maturity, as you call it? It's very rare. I've only seen it on probably five strains. And then the Skittles one is, is a different expression, but that one I have, that expression I can't remember seeing on any other strains. I mean, if I, if I look through my pictures in depth again, I could probably find maybe a couple more, but right. super, super rare. And that's, that's another thing, like going through the pictures later, like there's, there's so much going on in these pictures and there's only so much that we understand, but like the double trichome example, like uh, another photographer, Shwale, I believe is the first one to point that out. And it had some, been something I'd never seen before, but once I knew what to look for, I eventually found one in my own shots. And then once I saw that one, I started seeing it everywhere. And going back and looking at old pictures, I would find it once, once I knew what to look for, but I hadn't seen it in the past. So there's certain things happening like that, like that I have documented, but haven't noticed. And then either I'll spot something in, in a 
more recent picture and look back at old pictures and start seeing it everywhere. Or another photographer will post something and I'll be like, have, have I seen that before? And just not noticed. And then start looking through and sure enough, there it is. So it, it keeps things really interesting. You know, there's, there could be something new we discover tomorrow that, you know, we never knew. And honestly, like two days ago, that happened. Kurt Ice, another super talented macro photographer, reached out to me with like this weird, you really have to see a picture, but it's like on the edge of a leaf, this kind of clear leaf material, almost looked like new growth. Like it was clear. It wasn't green or blue yet or uh, green or purple yet. And it had these like almost looked like systole hairs that weren't fully developed, almost like cells attached to each other, almost like hot dogs kind of, or like links. Whereas a systole hair is like, smooth like spike and I started looking through my pictures and I found like 15 or 20 different examples of this showing up but the weirdest thing was it only showed up where the plant was purple I couldn't find it anywhere where the plant was green but I found tons of places on different strains where it was purple Interesting. so I have no idea what's going on there but I'm excited to see what <laughs> if we can figure it out yeah, that's really cool. I'm a big fan of both those guys. Uh, Kurt Ice, like you said, he mostly shoots for Green Bodhi or almost mm-hmm. exclusively. So and I, I saw that you, but going back to the Purple Heads, you know, one of his strains, I think, runs uh, a very kind of Purple Head, uh, some type of Pakistani he's running. Yeah, the Purple Pakistani Chitral. That was, uh, I got to shoot that for Green Bodhi, and that's one of those five strains that I've seen it on. And yeah, Chris has, uh, or Kurt has a ton of those ton of macros showing that uh, that expression yeah and like you said trail I, i've never actually known how to pronounce that until now but yeah big fan of his work too and and that that head that he's he's captured recently where it has that they're calling it the weak neck you know yes. for hash making uh, that's also super interesting to me have you come across that at all i mean that's another one that you know i i have definitely seen it but I didn't notice it until he pointed it out. And now it's one of those things I can look back on and, and see it, you know, in, in a bunch of different pictures. Um, I mean, it's not super common, but, you know, I, if, if you've shot hundreds, maybe thousands of strains, you know, you'll be able to find it in a couple of them. But again, that's, that's another one where you have to be looking at the exact right angle in order to see it because that head, if you're, if you're shooting it directly from the side, you can see it. But if you're up a couple degrees, the the you know bulbous nature of the head might cover up that that weak neck. So it's one of those that you gotta you gotta capture it at the right angle to see that. Yeah, similar to how you were talking about earlier, the the trichomes coming off the leaves and kind of blocking some of the detail beneath it. And obviously, like for I think humans that aren't typically doing this type of photography you're like oh well what's the big deal because you know but at that at that scale or, or that almost exaggerated kind of nature of looking at it like you said just the, a tiny fraction of a movement I've, I've heard you talk about your rails move like uh one micron at a time which is nuts mm-hmm. yeah with, with the 50x objective that i have it's it's about one micron per step that's ideal um but going back to the stack shot one micron per step is pretty much the limit of that. And using anything at its absolute limit, it's not going to perform, you know, the best. So 
certain times it'll stack a little bit more than one micron or a little bit less than a micron or like it'll bind up a little bit and it'll like skip ahead four microns and you know it it that limits your detail in your picture you need one picture every micron in order to stack it completely so i ended up buying a a new rail um it's not not something that you can get off the shelf it's like an industrial rail and uh i got it off some guy that was using it for something with dna i don't remember exactly what but just got it off ebay and got a uh, an adapter kit to connect it to the stack shot controller and that one will go like 0.3 microns per step so it's way pre- way more precise doesn't have any backlash it's like after using that one, I can see all the limitations of the stack shot. And like, so I, I've been using that one for, uh, for a lot of my, uh, stack spins and, uh, my really up close work lately. And it's just night and day difference from the stack shot. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into also the types of shots that you're doing. You've mentioned various ones of them already, but before we do, I want to talk about that phenomena where people are pointing things out to you, other photographers maybe, like Schwale, like Kurt. And then when you go back, you're like, oh yeah, it's been here. I just haven't seen it. What is that about? Like, is that just because your eye wasn't looking for that? Or what is that? I mean, I don't know. I think it's, it's got to do, it's got to be something to do with with just the sheer amount of trichomes that are in each shot like when i max out my mpe there's still like i mean i've only counted once but <laughs> when i counted it were like 700 trichomes in the frame and you know there's so much to look at like i'll nerd out on just one and how it refracts through and like like i was talking about the the very center cells kind of looking like an orange slice if you look at it from the right angle that's only visible on like a handful of those trichomes. If you've got 700 in the frame, they're all sticking off the leaf in a different way. And you got You can only see it on the one that's exactly angled perfectly towards you. And then when you add a, a rotation into that, you can kind of see how quickly things can change inside the trichome heads or other trichomes block certain things that, that are happening and then um, other weird things happen with adding motion and being able to see on a larger time scale, uh, like heads popping just on their own as, as the spin is happening. I've captured that twice now. You can also see, uh, and shout out to Constant Concentrates who pointed this one out, cytoplasmic streaming. Like if you're looking close enough, you can actually see things moving around inside the cells of the trichome stock. And I don't know what we just like did some Googling and the closest thing we could find was cytoplasmic streaming. Um, Just, you know, things inside the cells, moving nutrients and stuff around to other parts of the trichome. So, (laughs) you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Like who knows what we're going to find next. And, you know, it's shout out to all the other photographers out there. Like we're, we're just a community and we try and be friends with each other for the most part and share knowledge, share interesting things. And uh, yeah, just more people looking at something, the more understanding we're going to have of it. For sure. I agree. I think that's really cool. And again, as I told you before we started in a weird way, 
I, I find parallels between the craft of photography and the craft of hash making. It's like you have to know your tools, but you also are doing it from almost like an artistic sense. And so you need to control sure. variables to, to get the result that you're looking for. And just like hash makers share information, photographers share information and, and the community pushes forward. So that's, it's really cool to see, you know? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, when I started doing this, there were only a couple of other photographers, Schwale being one of them. Going back and forth with him really got me off the ground with, with the macro side of things. Beer goggles is another one. But yeah, just, just the community aspect is huge and just not, not seeing our, each other as competition, I feel like, is, is major. I mean, we are to an extent, but I feel like there's enough work to go around and the, the cannabis industry is just booming right now. I feel like there's a place for, if, if you want to come in and do macro photography, I mean, now's the time to jump in and, you know, get your piece of the industry. Yeah, for sure, man. And yeah, shout out to Beer Goggles. I, I used to enjoy his, his macro that he was doing as well. Yeah, he, he and Shwale are both super talented photographers and super talented hash makers. So there's, there's another parallel there. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm waiting for both those guys to come on. So, okay. <laughs> um, I think this is a good time to take a smoke break though. I wanted to take another opportunity to thank our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce this episode with Eric Nugshots and to give a shout out to some of our biggest contributors, including American Hashmakers in Washington, Hashmakers Union 73 in Ohio, Mario in Illinois, James the Casual Cultivator, Haji aka Solventless Terps, Jose, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Kevin from Lifted Indina, the homies Nate, Daniel, and Big C, Joe Itza, Adam from Mission Hill Melts and his awesome partner Hana, Totem Solventless in California, Manchu Gardens in Denver, and our good friend Jendo420. Thank you for listening. Now back to the episode. So, you know, now that you've been working with cannabis for like 10 years, like you said, how much respect have you gained for the cannabis plant and for cannabis cultivators? Oh man, it's been pretty much a journey of gaining respect nonstop. I mean, in the beginning, I was just going to dispensaries and buying flour that I thought was, you know, interesting looking or smelled interesting. Uh, I wanted to try it out just because I'd heard the name, you know, and it was from friends or online or something. So that was that was pretty much how I got started shooting. I would just go to the dispensary, you know, buy an eighth or a gram and shoot it. So I was spending a lot of money at the dispensary trying to get like small amounts of vast bunch of different strains. So I got to try a lot early on, but going to the dispensary and not really ever having seen a live plant, there was a disconnect of you know, how it goes from a plant to what I'm smoking. And after a couple of years shooting nugs, finally met a grower that would let me come to the grow and shoot live plants. And that was super wide, uh, super eye-opening for me just to see a, a flowering plant. I mean, I'd seen like clones for sale in the dispensaries, but, you know, I, I didn't understand how it went from one to the other. 
and then getting to see the live grow is just on another level. Like uh, the other side of just shooting dispensary weed was that most of the trichomes were already like knocked off and I was trying to shoot macros, but it was like a mess. Like I, I, I was seeing popped heads or just headless stalks, like, you know, leaf material just left in there during the trimming process. Like it was just a mess. So getting to shoot live strains for the first time was mind blowing because all the heads were still there and it, it, it was, it just looked totally different. So, and then, and then once, once I really got into shooting the live, it was just more and more and more respect for the growers that were doing this at the top levels. Um, you know, it's, and even now, like, like, uh, the organic side of things, like I got tons of respect for the the people that are growing super organic, um, using minimal or just organic pesticides and just trying to keep everything like as clean and organic as possible. It definitely translates to the flavor. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do this year. I'm not a grower or anything, but I've got, uh, got some living soil and a couple of little plants growing in the backyard and, you know, I'm going to try and make hash this year, but I'm not expecting too much, but I just want to learn. And, you know, I got nothing, nothing but respect for all the growers out there and uh, trying to push the craft forward. And, you know, and, and the hash hash side is, is something that's kind of new for me. Well, not really that new, but as far as like my whole career of being around cannabis, it's pretty new. And just to see how far that's come in the last couple of years with rosin and just the different forms it can take and getting to see some of these solventless labs where, where it's actually getting produced and just, it's, it's gotta be quality from, from the grow all the way, the harvest, the uh, washing, rosin, everything has to, has to be, you know, top notch for that product to come out top notch in the end. And uh, yeah, just nothing, nothing but respect. Has growing your own that you mentioned at all contributed to understanding how difficult it can be to grow the plant? Oh at yeah. <laughs> elite level. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, my first time I grew was, uh, I just had a little closet grow and one of my buddies, uh, rosin evolution kind of helped me get started. And, uh, it was hydro. I was doing rock wool stuff. He was basically like, just mix this with this and feed it at this time and you know just gave me the formula and it turned out okay like it was my first time I did three three cycles in that little closet space each time like expanded out a little bit more like the first time was just the closet and I had a 315 in there and then the next two I had kind of expanded it a little bit and expanded the closet past my window which had a window AC in it so I got a little bit of cooling in there and added a 630 it was okay <laughs> but kind of got me thinking about I didn't like doing the the hydro as much. I wanted to do more soil and like let the plant, you know, take up what it needs, not just give it what we think it needs. And, you know, I'm still very beginner, but uh it seems to be easier so far. Um just, you know, trying to give it give it nice organic inputs and we'll see what happens. Like last year, my, uh, my plants were okay. Like my backyard gets shade half the day. So 
I'm not expecting too much. And it's one of the reasons I want to hash it this year. But yeah, the flowers were just really airy and not a lot of flavor. So um, yeah, I'm just, it's just a little little hobby for me right now. Just trying to get better. But it it really puts in perspective what goes into producing top-notch flour, top-notch hash. You can't just you know dive in and produce at a, an elite level. Like these guys that are have been doing it for 20, 30 years are still learning. I mean, they're amazing at what they do, but they're still trying and tweaking and experimenting and it's it's what you got to do. Yeah. I think there's always something to learn, man, and something to try, you know? So I can definitely see that. And I'm curious, just because you brought up, you're going to try to hash some of your plants. uh, What are you growing this year? Because I know you're, you're homies with some cool hash makers, shout out Taste of Cascadia, you know? So Oh yeah. What gear are you growing? So I, I'm growing, uh, I popped some seeds. I've got a three phenos of squirt, which is a Humboldt seed company strain. It's blueberry muffin by Tangy. Um, and I'm a big fan of the fruity, fruity strains. And that one is actually really near and dear to my heart because, uh, Humboldt Seed Company two years ago did the uh, mega pheno hunt. They had like 15,000 different phenos and um, it was like a little, little trip. They brought a bunch of people out. I got to shoot some of the, some of the plants. So that was the reason I was there. And we got to go to like six or eight different farms and basically wander around the fields and just, you know, sniff all these different phenos and try and like narrow down you know, the winners of, of what they should, uh, you know, keep the phenos of. And, uh, my pick was pheno number 95 at, uh, the Humboldt seed company farm. And it turned out to be what later became squirt, which was, uh, you know, blueberry muffin by Tangy. So that was my pick and he hooked me up with some of the seeds. And so now I'm growing that. So I'm super excited to see how that comes out. I don't know if it's going to be a good hash strain or not, but Terps don't lie. So I know the Terps like already on the stem rubs, it's smelling insane. So I'm really excited about that one. And then I've got one strain of orangutan titties, which is uh, exotic genetics, grease monkey by Skittles. Okay. And that one's smelling insane too. And then Jay plant speaker uh, gave me a cut of GMO fuel F4. So that's, that's the only, the only clone I'm running outside. So that one should be super gassy and uh, should hash well. We'll see. But right. again, it's, I'm, I'm going with zero expectations. I just want to, you know, experiment, try and make my own hash. I don't have a freeze dryer or anything, so I'm going to try and air dry it. Luckily, nice. it's like 30% humidity here all the time. So, you know, I've got, hopefully it'll be not too hard to dry, but I'm going in with zero expectations. I'm, if I completely screw it up, that's fine. Uh, I just want to learn and kind of have a better understanding of what it takes to, you know, produce top quality hash. And then I feel like once I've made enough mistakes, I'll reach out to some of my friends and be like, okay, now let's, let's do this right and really learn how to do it. But I know it's like, I gotta, ha- I gotta make some mistakes and, uh, <laughs> and screw some things up first. For sure. I think that's super cool, man. And, and that you can do it almost at a hobby level and, and just go through the learning process is, is pretty cool. And I think it's cool that you're going to air dry and 
you said you're in Bend, right? So you, you have that low humidity. Yeah, it's, it's brutally dry here. I just got to keep the, uh, got to figure out how I'm going to keep it cool because <laughs> it's going to be pretty warm, but I don't know. We'll see what happens. Cool. Yeah. And you know, just because it sounds so interesting, I want you to talk to me a little bit more about that experience of going to that massive pheno hunt uh, with Humboldt Seeds, right? You said? Yeah. Humboldt Seed Company. Okay. Yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit more about that. Like when you say massive and you mentioned six farms, like how many phenos were they running? So I'm pretty sure it was 15,000 phenos, but it was, it was like, there would be a row of a particular cross or like halfway down, it would switch to another cross and you basically, it was all numbers. So you didn't know the crosses going into it. You could like, you would find out later, but yeah, I mean, we would just, we would kind of split up into, um, I think there are probably like 40 different people there. So we just kind of wandered through the farm with, uh, they had a little note sheet that we could write down like different notes of, you know, the structure and smell. And I can't remember everything else that was on there, but, but yeah, we just wandered. It was like, uh, I think it was two or three days that we were out there. Um, it was like full, you know, schedule. Like we would go to this farm from this time to this time and then go down, down the road to this other spot and have lunch and then go to this other farm. And so it was just like the best weed tour possible. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I feel super thankful to be, have been a part of it. And yeah, some really, really crazy good phenos came out of it. One of the other ones that I'm thinking of right now is vanilla frosting. That's a top favorite of mine right now. I just shot some for two farms. Um, the one I got to try so far is from DM farms down in, uh, leave Salem, uh, but they're up here in Oregon. Just terps are off the charts. It's amazing. Like flavor in the joint all the way to the very bottom. Third bong hit off the same bowl, still flavorful. It's, it's, you got to try it if you can get your hands on some. And hopefully it's a good hash strain too, because I feel like it would flavor off of a dab would just be insane. Yeah, that's super cool, man. And you know, you mentioned liking fruity type profiles. What were some of the things that you were smelling on that tour? Like, was there anything that was just like strange or different? I mean, I'm trying to remember. It was it was two years ago, so it's been a while. It's tough to remember the uh, the exact profiles. I mean, the the thing that's really sticking out for me is that that squirt strain. It was just off the charts, like. You know, it, it, like Forbidden Fruit has its own like orangey flavor and Tropicana has its own orangey flavor. It's like something somewhere in between those, but also off to the side a little bit. Like it's almost got like a blood orange vibe to it. Like there's there's like a, a metallic-y sweetness along with the orange. I don't know. It's, it's tough to describe, but that that's the one that really sticks out in my mind. And then there were a bunch of different... Uh, I remember this like really dark purple. I can't remember the cross on it, but it smelled like strawberries. I hope they kept that one. Um, there were some that were like super mango-y. I don't remember too much like really gassy ones there. It was a lot of interesting fruity kind of t- vibes, which is fine with me. Although I right. love the gassy side too. But, but yeah, it was just so so fascinating seeing all the different diversity and it was all 
outdoor farms, like some light depth, some full sun, um, nothing indoor is just wandering through fields of huge plants and just such a laid back vibe. Like my dogs were running around at some of the spots. It, it was just great. It sounds great, man. So, you know, going back to the granddaddy purple that you talked about earlier, being one of the first things that you shot and then combining that, which with what you talked about later, which is the fact that when you were shooting weed that you were buying at dispensaries and it was pretty beaten up in one way or another, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, have you seen it done right? Is it possible to get to the dispensary and still (laughs) be like intact? I guess my standards are pretty high. So I'd say like for what I would ideally like to see, no, there's no chance. And let me explain what I, my, my, so what's ideal for me is if I can get that branch that I shoot and I'll take it home and dry it out myself. That's, that aspect is less ideal. I wish I could like get it once the grow themselves have cured it up with everything else, but getting that untrimmed branch is what I like most. And then I can just go through with the tip of the scissors, not even cutting just, or my finger, honestly, and just flake off those fan leaves. And it's super dry here in bed. So I feel like it gets a little bit too dry. So they just like pop off real easy. And then you're not damaging any trichomes. Basically the ideal for me is it never sees the inside of a jar or or it sees the inside of a jar very delicately, like I'm placing it into the jar and dropping the next nugs on top of it. And it's just super, super, super delicate. And at most facilities, you know, it has to go through, it's, it's bucked down, it sits in bins, it goes through the trim table, it gets rolled around in the trim bin, it gets handled when trimmers are trimming it. Uh, then it goes into a bag or a jar and then it sits on the shelf. If you're in Oregon, it goes to the dispensary, sits on the shelf in a jar or other States where it's prepackaged, it has to get repackaged. I feel like the prepackaged aspect can potentially get the quality higher because it, it gets there with less hands touching it. There's not, it's not sitting in a jar getting shaken up in the dispensary, but I'm not, can't remember exactly how it works in California, but I think it has to go to a distributor that then packages it down. I don't remember if the farm themselves do it, but I want to see just a branch untrimmed that I can go buy at the dispensary. That's ideal for me. And then I can trim it up myself. Those fan leaves protect all the trichomes. Um, I don't know if that's something that (laughs) we'd ever see in a dispensary, but that would be ideal for me, just buying a untrimmed branch with the nugs still attached to the stock. Right, that's interesting. And what I find more interesting is just that talking to so many hash makers, that's what they're looking for too, right? Like they don't want to disrupt any of the surface trichomes at all. Yep, yep. They're so fragile. Like like the biggest, <laughs> the biggest cringe thing for me is when I go to a grow and I'm walking in there with, with, you know, the grower or, or an employee and, uh, they just, they're like, what about this cola? They just reach over and grab it and pull it towards them. And I'm like, 
not anymore. That you just popped ten thousand trichomes, you know, like don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, but it's an understanding that you have to almost gain for, for a reason. Sure. Yeah. Right. And in hash making, obviously we understand why. And but in macro photography, again, even more so, you know. Yep, for sure. Like yeah, fr- trichomes are so fragile. Like just like if, if, if you touch the plant and you notice that it's like, you can smell it a lot more, that's because you popped a bunch of trichomes and you released the resin from the inside of the heads. Like I really like it when, when I can pop a jar and smell nothing. Like, and usually the only time that happens, if it's, if I have the nug like clipped to my little magnet clips and it's, in the top of the jar. So when you close the jar, the nug is just suspended in space and it's not touching the sides of the jars at all. Cause touching the sides of the jars will pop trichome heads. So if I can open that jar and it smells like nothing, that's great for me because I know right. that no trichome heads have been damaged. Um, and I feel like for a lot of people, they'd be like, what is this? You know, it smells like nothing, but once, once you pop some of those heads, that smell comes right out. And, um, I mean, it's, I, I have nugs that I've left suspended in jars like that for like, I have some that are like three, four years old and they smell like nothing. But if you pop those pop a couple heads at the bottom, that smell comes back. Just, I mean, it's not exactly like day one cause it's so old, but you get that vibe from that strain and you can definitely still smell it. Right, just the less handled and, and the more carefully you're taking care of those trichomes yep. in the sense they're able to to stay on there and, and stay intact. And one of the things that I found fascinating about one of your recent interviews is something that you brought up about popping a trichome with like a dab tool or something. But what was yeah. the, the fascinating part, I guess, was the fact that you said after you popped one trichome or a couple of trichomes, the other trichomes that you were trying to pop with that same tool that had like this residue from the other trichomes were not popping as easily or at all. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So once, so I, the, the context for, for what, what you're referring to is an old video I did. Basically I went in with a T pin on live trichomes and just tried to touch them to see what would happen. And um, the second that T pin comes in contact with with that waxy cuticle on the outside head or outside of that trichome head it just ruptures like a water balloon like just pops but once that resin from the inside of the head was on the tip of that t pin i could touch other heads and that resin would act like a barrier like the resin would stick to the head but that head wouldn't pop right and i mean if you fiddled with it enough and like you could get it to pop, but that resin acted as a, as a really nice protectant. And the other thing that I thought was super fascinating was you could touch, if, if I took that T-pin and I pushed on a stock and basically pushed two heads together, the heads could touch each other and not pop. And right. like, you could rub them around and like, like there's, it's clearly the plant, you know, evolutionarily designed it that way um, because you know there's fans and wind and like the plants are moving around it it makes sense that 
the trichomes can touch each other and not pop, especially like, you know, growing time lapses is something that I really want to explore more. But I feel like, like, I don't know how trichomes form at what point they, you know, the, the stock pushes out, but it, it seems to be that trichomes might contact each other when the plant is growing. And it makes sense that they can touch each other and not pop or else you'd see, you know, tons more popped trichome heads all over the place. And that's just not the case. So super fascinating. It is. And like you said, it basically shows this amazing intelligence that these genetics carry with them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, going into that even further, like the, the difference in texture of, of trichome heads, like uh, hash makers, I'm sure can get into this way deeper. But for me, just working with the, the live stocks at harvest time and you know, I try not to touch it and I try not to pop heads as much as possible, but I'm, you know, cutting leaves off and, you know, sometimes I'll grab one of those discarded leaves covered in trichomes and, you know, pop them so I can get the real smell. And though the, that feeling of the trichomes between your fingers varies drastically from strain to strain. Like some will be super greasy, like almost like a lubricant on your fingers. Um, some will be super sticky. Some will be like sandy, like this GMO I've run across. Like you touch live heads and it feels like they're cured heads, like gritty between your fingers. Crazy. And when I shot that GMO up close, there were like zero popped heads in any of the pictures, which is like unheard of because trichomes are so fragile. Like if you're shooting you know, 700 plus trichomes in one frame, it makes sense that you'd have a couple of them popped. Um, it's just kind of, you know, something that I have to deal with shooting trichomes. Like you got to find the section that doesn't have popped heads. And I can't tell you how many times I'll like find a really nice section, like a leaf sticking out or something. And there'll be like a section of popped trichomes on the edge. Like you got touched or, uh, I mean, a fly landed on her, like who knows what happened, but you got to find another section because you know, those are compromised and it kind of ruins the picture. So yeah, trying to find a good section isn't always possible. I mean, sometimes you spend a long time trying to find a good section. Other times it's just, you put it under the camera and it's perfect everywhere. You know, you never know until you get up close. Yeah, I bet, man. And it's interesting that you bring up the GMO because... Obviously, it's a great hash strain for the most part, from what I've heard. And that texture that you were talking about, that sandiness that you hear a lot of hash makers talk about, since you're shooting it at such a scale, going back to the idea of being able to see this cuticle in the photographs, Mm-hmm. Like you were saying about moving the light around and possibly having like a better view of that. Can you see a difference between the cuticle or like maybe the the thickness or I, I don't know what it is? Uh, not that I've noticed. And that might be one of those ones where like once we start to see what a thicker cuticle looks like, we might be able to go look back at previous pictures be like, oh, yep, there it is. But right now, I don't, 
I don't see a difference, like a visible difference between the waxier ones versus, you know, other consistencies. But right. one thing I will say that you just reminded me of is certain, certain GMO, like hash that I've had in the past will not grease up. Like it'll grease up a little bit, but it still looks sandy in the fridge. Whereas other strains kept at the same temperature, you know, just grease up like right away. Uh, you got to keep them way colder. Uh, but the GMO in particular stays super sandy at like my, my fridge is 50 degrees and I can go pull out some GMO right now. That's still sandy. I just, just stabbed it two days ago, probably a year, year and a half old at this point. Yeah. And this is kind of a side note, but you and I were joking about your little hash fridge <laughs> and having a good amount of selection in there, but still being careful as to what you're dabbing. So you, you still have a little bit. So a year and a half later, I don't know. It takes a lot of discipline, man. I don't know if I, <laughs> I have it in me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I like to savor, savor and keep strains. Like For sure. I have my, my favorite strain ever, my favorite concentrate that, I've ever had, which is Harvest Moon Garden Skittles. I still have like three quarters of a gram. Still smells like when I got it like three years ago. I'm just cherishing that. Like I'll do a dab like on 420 and 710 and maybe when, you know, friend is in town that loves dabbing that I haven't seen before, I'll I'll break it out. But there's a couple of them like that that just kind of sit in there and only special occasions. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I, I like trying the diversity, so I'll you know pick up a couple grams here and there and dab on those and save the older ones. Really uh, lucky that a lot of people give me some samples to try. So yeah, that's um, awesome. Definitely got a lot lot to try, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like saving up the old the older stuff and stuff that super special and just keeping it around and, and dabbing it on it for years. Um, and for the most part, it does keep really well. There are a couple that, you know, you can taste the degradation, but for the most part, things do keep really well for a long time in the fridge. Yeah. I'm curious if your repeated exposure to photographing cannabis plants and trichomes has furthered your knowledge about trichomes. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's it's kind of just a constant learning process. Like, you know, uh, with, with the double headed trichomes, that was something that we kind of discovered a couple years back. And now it's like, you see it all the time, uh, even with other macro photographers lately, there's been a couple of people that have found some triple headers. I personally haven't. Then last week, Candid Kush, uh, sent me this picture of some Mac one that he had shot. And I have no idea what was going on on this thing, but it's like, like a seven, eight header. It's like the weirdest little deformity. It it almost looks like the plant got confused and started growing a trichome stalk. But then it was like, well, no, this is more like a leaf. And it just kind of (laughs) got huge and trichomes are sprouting out from all sides. And like in the same view, you can see like a couple doubles, like, I want to say there's like five doubles visible and then there's a couple other weird ones like that that one that like seven or eight headed one it's super weird never seen anything like it before 
So, <laughs> you know, who, who knows what we're going to find next week. But that's, that's one of the things that keeps it super interesting, just these weird things that are popping up. And then, you know, it, breeders are constantly breeding new things. So, like, with the... I don't know if you've seen the freak show, but that one, it's like, it looks like a fern almost. The leaves aren't your classic cannabis serrations. It, it looks like a fern. But yeah, I think I I've have. Gotten, I've gotten to shoot that one up close and the trichomes are, the trichomes look normal. You know, it's just on a different shaped leaf. So, you know, who knows what's gonna, what's gonna come next. I, I just love the diversity of cannabis and seeing all these new things and like, different colorations, you know, that, that star pupil that I got to shoot some of the craziest purples. I can't wait to explore that one more. Cause that one I, I shot for hours before I finally found the a good section with those polka dotted uh, trichome heads. Um, and by that time it was like trichomes were starting to dry out a little bit. I got to wait for another livestock of that to come down to explore more. But I basically found that those pink had, uh, polka dot heads were more towards the center of the plant. The further you got out, the less prevalent they got. So it took me like two days of shooting to like understand that. And now I know going in next time, I'm just going to try and go towards the center. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. How you kind of learn from essentially doing it, you know, and then when you go back, you can focus on another area like that. Another kind of curious thing that I've seen through your, photography with trichomes or like an effect that happens to them is this bleaching out of trichomes or the quote-unquote albino trichomes so are you referring to like the the leaf material bleaching out or the trichomes themselves the trichomes themselves and i mean of course the 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 leaf material also looks like bleached out but i thought that the trichomes were also somewhat weird looking so i've only shot i've shot light bleached I shot one light bleach nug and those trichomes looked fairly normal. I mean, I, okay. I should go back and look at that picture again now just to make sure. Cause it was like four or five years ago at this point. But the one thing I did notice about those is they were all the, the amber headed trichomes. And I don't know if that's because it was so close to the light that that light bleaching, you know, caused them to, you know, oxidize or mature more whatever it was but that was the biggest thing i noticed on that albino one is the trichomes just looked like past what most people would say like peak maturity that brings up a good point and something that i love to talk about with hash makers and obviously your experience is different but you know when we talk about maturity when people present these plants to you to shoot them essentially at their like apex, at their most beautiful looking point, plant, trichomes, everything. Is that usually when they're quote unquote opaque or cloudy? So when the growers have me come in, it's usually, it's like a couple different factors. We have to A, make it work on my calendar and their calendar. So Certain times we're shooting like on harvest day or it might have to be like a couple days before or maybe like a week before. Another factor with like indoor grows is the leaves like crisping up near the end of the harvest cycle or like yellowing out. And a lot of the growers don't like to show that. So I'll come in a little bit earlier. Um, okay. doesn't it, 
the peak harvest shoots usually aren't dependent on the trichome ripeness. It's not like someone's like, I want you to shoot, you know, with a, a macro with 25% ambers or 50% ambers or whatever. Like that's never happened. And even, even then with the ambers, it like depends on where you look. Like if you come in at peak harvest, you can find a section with a bunch of ambers if, if they're there. I mean, it depends on the strain and how far the grower took it and whatnot, but you can usually find a section with a lot of ambers or find a section with not a lot of ambers, depending on where you look. And I try to have less ambers in there usually because, because they, the head, usually the heads are kind of compromised. I don't know exactly what happens if the, if the heads get brittle and they burst on their own. I've heard people mention that. I don't know if they get more brittle and, you know, they just, maybe something touched them. I don't know. I will say that if, if trichome heads get compromised, though the tips of those trichomes will usually amber up before the ones around them. That's something classic that I've noticed. Pop trichome heads will, will amber up or, or potentially oxidize. I don't know exactly what's going on, but, but yeah. So by compromise, and just because I've seen so many of your photos recently, looking at your work, you're, you're meaning like the trichome head basically pops and then the stock remains, but that stock has a very amber or, you know, whatever color it may be look. Yes. So usually when that happens, it's like, you got to think about like, like the cells in the base of the head. Like when that head pops, right. that, that circle of cells is usually left connected to the top of the trichome stock. Right. So those are the cells that, that turn amber. So that's usually what you're seeing. Like it's, it's because the trichome heads are so fragile and they're attached to the top of the stock. If they get compromised on a live plant, usually that's what you're left with. That circle of cells still attached to the head, but the trichome head itself has popped and that resin is run down the stock. Uh, when it's dried out, the head snaps off a lot easier and is a little bit more uh, resilient. But, uh, and yeah. that goes back to the theory that trichome heads are always clear, but it's that almost part that you're talking about that's connected to the stock right at the top or the base of it that's that's having the actual change in color that you can yes. see the refraction in the heads of. Yes. Yeah, it's it's abundantly clear when that head is gone, that circle that that it's it's almost like a a mound. I really really want to work with a glass blower at some point to try and make a scale model of a trichome with these cells in it. So we can actually like move it around in front of us and like see how it interacts. Right. And I think it's going to have to be like, uh, we try it and iterate a bunch of times. Cause it's, it's just, it's a sphere and like the light changes depending on the angle you're looking. And like, I just want to try and understand it a lot more. Um, and I think like having a glass trichome would be super cool. Um, just to understand what's going on. I totally agree, man. So yeah, any glass blowers listening? Uh, yeah, hit me up if you want to collab <laughs> on that. That's That's been a dream of mine for years. <laughs> but it's funny that you bring up these these cells, right? Because I've seen some newer type of photography where they're using, I don't know if it's infrared and maybe a combination of infrared and UV or and like you're able to like see like literally see these cells inside the trichome. 
Yeah. A shout out to Sanny Seeds. I think picture photography is, uh, he's, he started his like photo account. Um, but, uh, Sanny Seeds is the one where a lot of his work has been. He's doing like insane macros with, uh, microscope lenses, but he's also just recently started doing UV light and it, it makes certain aspects glow. I don't know. I think I saw a, a, like a scientific article probably a year ago where they were doing the same kind of thing. And like the THC would glow a certain color under UV. And honestly, one of Sandy Seeds posts the other day was a UV shot of a male, um, like a male flower and a female flower in the same shot. And the trichomes are glowing different colors. And Right. What's going on there? Like, we don't know yet. Or maybe we do. And I just haven't, you know, read the scientific paper. But I love stuff like that. It's so fascinating. Like, you know, what's happening here? Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, look, I I don't think that we do know, to be honest. And and maybe, like you said, maybe there has been research done. I just think the plant obviously has been in such a weird legal position for so long that so much of this work hasn't been done. But just having that, like, visual reference or that visual cue to see the difference is yeah. fascinating on its own, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's, it kind of goes into like, you know, we, we can't physically see, you know, what we're shooting with the macro lens with our eyes, but the macro lens brings it out. It's very similar with UV light. Like you, you don't, I mean, I, our eyes detect a certain level of it, but we see, you know, red to purple in the spectrum and when we shoot with a color outside that spectrum that the cameras can detect it's like it illuminates you know a completely other world that we weren't aware of it's just super trippy to think about i agree it's it's a it's a cool time for for cannabis and and having people that are pushing the envelope in in so many different senses makes it even that much more exciting definitely yeah, yeah. Let's quickly just talk about the, the types of different trichomes, you know, and, and I bring this up because I was looking at one of the videos that you were making and remind me the type of, of video that you're calling it where you're, you're taking macros, but it, they have motion to them. They have almost like a 180 or 360 type feel to them. So I've been calling those the stacked spins and shout out to uh, video.macro. He's the photographer that really started pushing those. I always kind of thought it was just like, it would be too difficult to shoot and the plant would wilt and like the processing side was stressing me out. I was like, you got to take like 10,000 pictures. Anyway, he figured it out and gave me the push to, to try it. And it turned out to be not as, as difficult as I was making it out to be in my head, but Basically, you you shoot a stack, so it could be you know sixty v one hundred, however many pictures you want, and then you rotate slightly, do another stack, and then repeat that, you know, for ten hours, and you're ended up with with a stacked spin. Once you stack them all, of course, but uh, you basically get a ton more depth than you would with just a single uh, picture. Because the way I do my my 360s is all stills. So, you know, take a picture, rotate, take a picture, rotate, take a picture, rotate. Basically just trying to increase what's in focus in, in one of those. And then you're 
the biggest limiting factor is time because you're the plant is wilting, it's drying out while you're shooting. So you got to figure out how to keep that plant from wilting for ten hours. <laughs> and so that was that was a tricky tricky thing to uh, to try and solve. And I think my climate is also a limiting factor in that because it's so dry here. Surface area is another photographer, and I, I was hanging out with him. He lives on like look right on the ocean in Washington. And he was saying he can just leave livestock out, doesn't even have to have them in water really. And they'll just sit there for days and not change and not dry out. Like he was blown away that I did a dry out time lapse in 48 hours, whereas he can just leave it there for a week and it won't change. So um, your shooting conditions have a, a huge effect on what you can do. And I mean, it's, it's the same thing with growing, like your, your conditions, you know, matter a lot. So it's, it's, it's another thing to factor in with all the, the exposure and lighting and it's just a big balancing act. For sure, man. It definitely sounds like it. One of the things that I found cool about the video that I was referring to is that you were super excited about getting a, almost like a, really unique angle at some of the surface area trichomes as opposed yes. to these, you know, capitate stock trichomes. Yes. Yeah, so the, the smallest trichome, like I didn't even see it for a long time. And I'm probably, if I went back and looked at my pictures, it's probably there all over the place, but now I know what to look for, but it's the, the bulbous trichome. And it's basically just, it sits on a, a stock that's one cell high and it's just this little tiny, almost like a miniature capitate stock trichome, but it's one cell high. It's super small. It's like, uh, you, I don't even know exactly where it is on, on the plant. Like it just kind of shows up periodically in, in my pictures underneath some trichomes. Right. Um, so I, I couldn't tell you like, look on this type of leaf to find it. I don't know. It's, it's, it's another one of those that uh, kind of comes up randomly that I didn't see for years. And honestly, like getting the, the microscope lenses really made it visible to me. Like it's, it's in there with the, the MPE shots, a little bit more zoomed out, but really visible with the microscope as long as it happens to be in that shot. Yeah. And is that like, an, again, an additional tool that you've had to add to your equipment is the, the microscope? Are you using microscope lenses as well, or how does that work? Yeah, and I that was another like way to push the macro side forward. Like I was the the MPE is just a, a it's made by Canon. It's just a lens you can buy off the shelf, but it's, it's about the extent that you can get with an off the shelf lens. Like if you want to get closer, you got to look to the microscope side of things and microscope lenses are called objectives and they come in a couple different ways or a couple different configurations depending on your microscope and, and like how they focus and a bunch of other stuff microscopes are a whole other <laughs> rabbit hole that i don't even fully completely understand but basically i got this it, it's a uh my, my, I have three microscope lenses, a 10X, a 20X, and a 50X. Uh, the 20X is my favorite one. It's, it's uh, made by a company called Midituyo. 
basically just attaches to the front of one of my other lenses. It's designed to be used with what's called a tube lens. It's just part of the how it, how it focuses. There's, there's two different types of microscope lenses, and the infinity corrected side, which is what this 20x I have is, just allows you to put it on the front of uh, a 200 millimeter camera lens, and then the focus just works. There's other configurations that you can do with other lenses, and like you basically just have to get the microscope lens to a certain distance from your sensor, and it has to be the exact <laughs> distance. So it's tricky to get that aligned all the time. But but yeah, so that that 20x just goes on the front of one of my other lenses and uh, works pretty much the same. I can't change the f-stop on it, and I have to have that lens set at 200 millimeters, or else it won't cover the sensor completely. And then just shoot it with, with the stacking rail like normal. Just make sure you're covering the, the same amount of, of depth for what you want to bring out in the picture. But those get even trickier, like what we were talking about before with trichomes sticking out from the surface and that out-of-focus trichome head blocking detail from the leaf. Like with the MPE, it's not that big of a deal. If you really look closely, you can kind of see there's a little kind of halo around the heads that are sticking way far out with the microscope lens. It's brutal. Like it's almost impossible to shoot a trichome head top down and get the leaf in focus too, because the trichome head is just way out of focus. Like it'll take one to 200, probably, probably a hundred shots to get the trichome head in focus completely. And it's, Microscope is microscope lenses. It's it's another level of complexity on top of everything else for the macro world. You really got to shoot it at the at the right angle uh, to get it to like look normal. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It sounds complex, man, and it's interesting to me that you brought up earlier that you were you have kind of a engineering type mind, and it sounds like it probably would come in handy. In these situations. Yes. Yeah, I, I would think that it's contributed a lot to just like going this far down the rabbit hole. And like I have my, I don't want to talk too much about it, but my, my studio setup is like designed for macro. Like it's, it's my own little thing that I kind of honed over the years and it just, it works for me. And I wish I could tell more people about it because I'm so proud of it, but I know it'd get copied. And um, it's kind of like one of my, one of the few things I won't talk about too in depth because it's like my special sauce. For sure. I really wish I, <laughs> maybe someday I'll talk about it because I'm super proud of it. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can totally understand, man, understand that, man. Like, you know, you've, you've worked hard at your craft and, and you have your little setup that works for you and, and gives you your unique kind of look, you know, so. For sure. <laughs> well, I, this might be a good chance for a second little smoke break before we come back. Do you feel like you're using too much ice during your washes, especially during the summer? Then check out our friends Pele Polare and their thermal jacketing systems. You can visit them at pelepolareco.com. That's P-E-L-L-E-P-O-L-A-R-E-C-O.com or at pele underscore polare on Instagram. 
Their thermal jacketing systems will battle condensation for you, allowing you to use less resources. No matter if you're a home producer or a commercial producer, Pele Polare can help. No matter if you wash by hand or wash by machine, Pele Polare can help. And no matter the size of the vessel that you're working with, Pele Polare can create a custom thermal jacketing system anywhere from five gallons to a thousand gallons. Their thermal jackets help you keep the vessel at the temperature that you need. Obviously, for hash makers, that's ice cold. Ice is only helpful in cooling the water to make the resin temporarily brittle and easier to work with. It has no other function in the process. If anything, ice can create more contaminants in your hash by agitating the plant material. That's where Pele Polaris thermal jacketing system can help you most. It allows you to use less ice. Less ice leads to a cleaner product, as well as saving you money on ice and time. Regardless of what you're washing in, keep your units cooler for longer. Check out all their options, including customizing your thermal jacketing system with your logo and color of your choice. Again, visit them at pelepolaresco.com or at pele underscore polare and as always use our savings code the letters t-h-i all together it saves you five percent on an already reasonably priced product that saves you money in the long run thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the episode so tell me about the difference between shooting live plants versus dry plants outside of the degradation or the compromising of the trichomes as you called it that's a great question and it kind of goes back into like what i was doing early on versus now so my early experience was buying nugs at the dispensary and everything that goes into those nugs getting to the dispensary so overhandling basically so when i shoot dry i prefer to either dry it out myself or get to it before it before it leaves the hanging rack. So if I can get in there and cut it myself and then dry it out, that's ideal because you know in, in the harvest, like I when I'm picking out a, a branch to shoot, I will like take extra care not to smash it into the trellis or hit it against other plants or you know, whatever, when I'm, when I'm taking it down, just try and keep it as pristine as possible. So once a plant's gone through the harvest cycle, when it, when it gets harvested, you're, you're not as precise or like, you're not as, as you're not taking as much care as I am when I'm taking it down. You know, you got to weigh the plant and you got tons of plants to take down. So it's never going to be, you're always going to potentially have some trichomes getting touched or whatever. So Ideally, I'll dry it out myself and then shoot it dry to make sure it's in the best condition possible. Uh, second best is getting into the drying room at a facility and walking around and like actually getting to pick out my top uh, before it hits the trimmers. Once it's hit the trimmers, I pretty much tell them it's not going to look as good. You're going to be able to see every little thing you know, leftover leaf material from the trimmers, like, you know, trichomes can just fall off. I I use little magnetic clips, so I can't tell you how many times, like, if I've got a nug clipped in and I, I'm not super careful, 
connecting that magnet to my my studio, it'll snap together and you'll see like a cloud of trichome heads flying off the nose <laughs> and like those used to be attached. So it's shooting dry is really tricky. You got to really take care, but the differences in look is also a big, big factor. So the trichome heads themselves are pretty much the same from live to dry. The stalks are at stalks and the, the leaf material of the plant itself is what really dries out. And you can clearly see when it's live, those cells are just full of water. And when they dry out, they, they shrivel up and it just, it doesn't look as good. It's, it's, it's all dried out. All those cells are like shriveled up. The trichome, trichome stalks will shrivel up. And I mean, in that drying out time-lapse idea, you can see stuff like the moving and the heads will kind of bump into each other as those stalks are settling. So it's, it's just a different look, but the trichome heads themselves are, are the same. And if you can get it dried out, uh, without disturbing it, you can shoot some insane macros of heads because the other thing that happens is the plant loses a lot of volume. So those heads then become closer together. And if, if you can keep it in pristine enough shape, you'll just get, and and you shoot the right section you can just get just these amazing scenes of just heads just squished together not compromised just it's like a ball pit (laughs) just just insane uh but it's really tricky to get to that point yeah i love that video that you were referring to where you see in essence the trichomes going from their alive look and then, like you said, they, it's almost like they collapse or compress on themselves. The, mm-hmm. Or like you're saying, it's probably the stock drying out. And all these yeah, exactly. trichomes, like you're saying, are just are coming together and creating so much more uh, of a density of trichomes or a surface area of trichomes. And so it's cool yep. to hear that. But like you said, it's difficult to get to that point, you know. And if this is part of your secret sauce and, and you can't talk about it, I totally get it. But I'm curious, going back to what you were saying earlier about having to keep your plants hydrated, in essence, how are you doing this? What's a good tip for somebody who wants to try this and and keep their material fresh, especially if they are in a dry climate such as yourself? So I'll give you like 90% of the secret sauce. So basically, it's just keep the stem in water. If you you keep the stem in water, it's going to stay pretty much hydrated you know, over time, you'll start to see a little bit of degradation, but as long as the stem's in water, it'll keep, you know, pretty much the same and allow you to shoot it without wilting. Yeah, that's the biggest, yeah, just keep keep the stem in water. It's as simple as cool, that. Cool, yeah, so it's just yeah, like, a, like a flower or something that you want to keep alive for a while. And Yep, and exactly. And so... I'm curious just because I, I talked to so many hash makers, but have you ever shot material that is quote unquote fresh frozen, like in that state? Yes. Yeah. I actually just shot some maybe month or two ago. And is there anything unique that you see? So 
I mean, it's there's a little bit of of uh, trichome heads being compromised. You know, I don't know if that was in in the way they harvested it, or I mean, for sure, if if that nug is coming in contact with the side of the bag, it's for sure going to pop some. You know, I. I you know, going back to that video, I did the test where, you know, you bump two trichomes together, but that was a really gentle, you know, nudge. If, you know, if you're throwing, you know, during harvest time, if you just toss the nug into the bin with the other nugs, does that, is that going to damage some heads? Like, I don't know. I didn't get to see the harvest process. I just got to see it once it was fresh frozen. I mean, there were definitely tons of heads there still, but it, it wasn't like, a perfect, you know, livestock. And the other thing that uh, I kind of hear as like, like urban legend almost or whatever is that freezing will compromise the heads or like ice crystals can pop through the heads or whatever, whatever that urban legend is. I haven't seen that translate to truth. I've, I've shot two separate instances of, of, well, shot this fresh frozen recently. And then I shot a, a frozen nug a couple years ago. And that one just ended up being like a time lapse of ice crystals, like melting across the screen, which was cool. But once all that ice melted, it was just a row of heads and they were, they seemed perfectly fine, you know, just had a little bit of water droplets on them. But yeah, freezing doesn't seem to affect the heads, at least from just a visual uh, look. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I've I've heard, for example, Frenchy Cannoli talk about his idea of like using it fresh versus freezing it as, for example, a chef would want to because of that crystallization process that you're talking about. And so that was part of the reason that I was asking is just out of curiosity, if like visually you could see some kind of change to it. But uh, that's interesting that you did that somewhat time-lapse, like you called it, where it, it essentially went from being frozen, washed all that out, and then everything somewhat looks the same, you know? But, and let's play hypotheticals here. Like, what is the fix for a hash maker to not pop any heads? I mean, is it only like cutting it super gently and just immediately putting that material into a work bag and start working it fresh? You know, that's a tough question. I don't, actually no i mean clearly what the hash makers are doing right now is working i mean if you took that extra care like let's just say hypothetically if you if you set a nug gently on top of the others before you froze it or during the harvest or whatever i've only helped a couple people harvest for fresh frozen so it's not my like you know i, I don't know how everybody does it right. um but but maybe if you took a little bit more care in that process, you might like, is it worth it? Basically, like you might get one uh, or 2% more, but in the time that it takes you to take that little bit of extra care, is it going to translate to more yield? Like it is, does it end up being worth it in the end? I don't know. It's something that I want to explore some more. I mean, I, I'm really excited to do it with my own hash. Um, exactly yeah try some things here and there but again it's not going to be like i've got a lot of stuff to learn with my hash so <laughs> yeah for sure and you know it's funny because 
you brought up, for example, putting it in a bag or up against even a bin or anything that the plant is touching when they're fresh frozen. And I think that in part, maybe there's this idea where like, okay, well, the heads will just fall off to the bottom of this container or whatever, and then I'll rinse that all into the bag and catch it. But in reality, in part, what's happening is the heads are popping. And like you're saying, it might not be a huge percentage, but you're just essentially losing those heads. It's not like they're falling necessarily to them, unless it's something as stable as the GMO. Right. Yeah, it definitely is strain dependent to an extent. I should honestly like go back and do that popping video with a bunch of different strains, like something that I would consider greasy or sticky or sandy. Honestly, I should just partner with a hash maker that is like, you know, seeing has, has the hash side of, of, of what's yielding and, you know, do some experiments with them. But yeah, sorry, I forgot the question. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. You know, and since we're talking about hash and hash making, uh, I know this isn't your thing or like your specialty necessarily, but let's talk about photographing hash because in one of your other interviews that you did recently, again, I heard you talked about the difficulty of shooting hash, you know, even as complex as some of your images are of the live cannabis plants or dried at times, it still sounds almost harder to deal with hash. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes in back into that consistency of, of the heads. And once, once you just have a pile of those heads, it gets, it gets really tricky in, in several different instances. So first of all is the temperature and how the temperature affects, you know, it, it's going to grease if it's too hot. On the flip side, if it's too cold, then, well, I don't know if this too cold is a thing necessarily. Um, but if it's cold enough where the trichome heads aren't kind of clumping together a little bit, yeah. you don't get a very interesting picture because it's just, it just, you know, falls off. You kind of need it a little bit in the middle so you can get a clump of heads that will make an interesting picture on your dabber or whatever you're shooting it on. But you okay. need them to kind of kind of stick together a little bit so you get something interesting. If it's just all sand, it it's not that interesting unless you can get like a really good pile going. Um, it I like it better when I can like get like a, a chunk of hash that's like maybe just on the way to greasing, but you know it still looks perfect from the outside, but it can stick together as a chunk. Have you tried working in a cold environment? Out of curiosity. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've shot in, in people's hash labs where it's like 50, 60 degrees. Honestly, in the wintertime here in Bend, when it's like, you know, tw in the 20s overnight, I shoot in my garage and it's like 30 degrees and it's perfect. Like that is it's ideal. And cold, yeah. Oh yeah, it's perfect. But right now it's like 85 degrees in my garage and I, I can't. Yeah shoot hash in there. Like there's no chance. I haven't figured out how to, to shoot hash in a sandy form in outside of like a cold room. Cause it's just greasing on me or I don't even try. Cause I know it's not going to end up very well. So yeah, cold is key for, for shooting hash for sure. Yeah. And another type of shot that I've seen from you that was interesting in its own right when it comes to hash is this pressing of the rosin. You're doing these like, 
zoomed in where like you can actually see the stocks and the bags and the, but these things are yeah. taking you like days and hours of, <laughs> of shooting to make. Well, that one, that one was early on the one you're referring to. It's like one of my first posts on the Eric.nugshots account. And it was, it was basically a time-lapse of, of uh, a little rosin waterfall. And it was early on. I was, I was trying to do like added motion. Um, so I have the stack shot, which moves the camera forward and back. And then I have the rotary table, which does my 360s. So I kind of combined the two into like one motion path. So it would start on the left side and then... As you, as the press came down, it started moving and it slowly moved to the right side as the press was happening. And then once it reached that end of its motion, then the press was done and press opened back up. But that took so long because it, the, it's super macro. So you're in, you're looking at like very, very small, probably a penny could fit in the shot. But we had to get that rosin waterfall to come out of the perfect spot so it would be in frame so we were just pressing non-stop trying to get it to come out right it took like three days to to like really get a winning shot but like i said that was years ago um and that was flower rosin like i want to try some some stuff like that now i didn't have 4k video back then now i do i'm a lot better at controlling the motion so I definitely want to try that shot again with, with the technology that I've got now. Yeah, for sure. So hash makers, if you're listening, <laughs> Let's get Eric up. but you know, so now that you have more experience, do you think you could do that in a quicker time frame? Oh, for sure. But the, like trying to get it to come out in the perfect spot is also, it's going to be tricky. It's like, we just got lucky there. I mean, it, we kind of, after pressing it enough times, we kind of saw where the waterfalls were happening. And, you know, you get close in that spot and then one will come out, you know, a couple millimeters to the left or a couple millimeters to the right. Like it's, it's coming out of pretty much the same spot, but you got to get it like right in the center of the frame. At least I did. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it'd be fun to do that kind of, kind of thing again with actual hash rosin because the, the colors that are coming out now are just insane. Yeah, I bet. And it probably look a lot cleaner as well, like through the screen. And so mm -hmm. it'd, be, it'd be really cool to see, but it definitely you, sounds like a challenge, man. Oh, for sure. And you could probably see all the little heads in there, like with, right. with the, uh, with the, the shots that I was doing through the bag. I mean, you could see a head every now and then, but you'd see, you know, stigmas and plant material. And I mean, you could see the, the resin or rosin come through the bag, uh, through the mesh of the bag. That was probably one of the coolest shots I got of that. But yeah, with, with the hash, it's gotta be on another level. Yeah. And you know, that took you three days and it's been a while and there's other projects that are probably taking you longer. I heard you talk about even, taking six months to go through the process of, of figuring out how to do these hyper zooms that you're doing mm -hmm. now. Do you think people who are looking at your images 
possibly even the people that are hiring you to do these images are unaware as to how much work goes into creating these images? I think a lot of people do know because I've, I've put it out there and a lot of the, the people that are hiring me do already follow me and they're familiar with, with the work and they like they know what they want going in. So it makes my job a lot easier on like the sales side of things because okay. I'm not a salesperson. I, I don't sell myself very well. But, but having the Instagram feed and people seeing, they're just like, I want this. And they kind of, they've read the descriptions and they see how, like what it, what goes into it. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting position, like not having to sell yourself as much. Right. And I mean, I guess that's one of the positives to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, which was the recognition, right? So like, when, like you said, people know what they're going to get from seeing your work, then I'm assuming that your schedule is pretty solidly booked, you know? It's, I mean, it comes and goes like Proptober is definitely my busiest time of the year. Um, and my schedule is already filling up for that with, with COVID and everything, things kind of slowed down for a couple months, but they're definitely already picked back up. Um, and things are, things are going good. Yeah. I've got, got a lot of shoots scheduled around Humboldt and, uh, in Southern Oregon already for, uh, for the harvest coming up. Yeah, that's cool, man. And you know, you mentioned this, I think, earlier about some of the years that you were still kind of taking the leap into going pro and, and doing this as a, as a career instead of being more of like your hobby or slash side hustle. What was that transition like? You know, was it easy? I mean, it was easy quitting my job because I was kind of over it at that time. but. That was the, I mean, I had wanted to make the leap for a while, but I just like, I wasn't sure exactly when that perfect time is. Like I was starting to get shoots here and there, but it wasn't, wasn't super consistent. And I knew if I had more time to devote to it, I could get it to that level. But, but I still had a day job and it got to the point with the day job where I was kind of over it and ready to look for something else. And I had a, uh, a buddy of mine that I was kind of working with on other business stuff at the time. And I kind of brought him in as my business partner and that ended up not working out. And I had to get a lawyer involved to get my company back and learned a ton throughout the whole process. There were about a year or two of, you know, just barely scraping by used up all my savings and was living off of credit cards. Thankfully, you know, I was able to push through that and pay those off. And, you know, now it's, now it's my job. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, easy <laughs> by any means. And, you know, they're better months than others. And, you know, sometimes you're still scraping by and sometimes you're doing great. Um, it just kind of, you know, part of working for yourself and that's kind of entrepreneurship in general you know, you got to roll with the punches and you never know what's going to happen and you got to make the most of things. So, yeah. I feel like if you weren't as passionate for both things, it would be harder or something that you might just oh, not have done. 
Oh, for sure. No, the passion is, is huge. And, uh, to have the, I mean, like photography was always my hobbies for my whole life. So to be able to turn that into my career in cannabis, which is another huge passion of mine, you know, it's just, it's like the perfect storm. And I feel so lucky to, to get to do this. And I know it could, you know, I might have to go get another job at some point to make ends meet if things happen. And, you know, I'm fine with that. I would ideally not like to do that if possible, but you know, you got to roll with the punches and you never know what the future holds. Um, but I, I feel really lucky to, to A, to be doing it and B, to be doing it at the time. Like I got in right before the industry went legal, just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And and capitalized on it, honestly. Like I could have just let it pass by and watched it and kept it as a hobby, but I knew that that there was a lot a lot of potential if if I took the leap and pushed through those hard times. Yeah, and just out of curiosity, what was it that made you feel that you could pull it off? I don't know if it was I don't know. I, I just, I guess I, I felt that I could make it happen. I mean, at the time, my day job was at a vaporizer company. So I was kind of seeing, I was watching the industry blow up from kind of like a side seat. Like we were in the industry, but not really, we weren't touching the flower at all. And so we, we, we could have a bank account and we could have all these other things that all these other legal businesses in the industry couldn't get. And we were seeing all these struggles of, you know, people that were closer to the plant that didn't pay us for certain things or whatever it might be. Um, but I, I saw the direction things were going and I knew that, that if it wasn't me, it was going to be somebody else. Um, so I just, and I mean, you know, I was, what I'm, I'm 31 now. So I was a lot younger then. And it wasn't, if it didn't work out, it wasn't going to be the end of the world. So it just made sense to, to take the jump and, you know, worst case scenario, I just go get a job and pay off all the debt, (laughs) (laughs) move on, you know, but thankfully it worked out. Yeah, for sure, man. That's cool. And I'm curious, like if you had any advice to give to somebody who is looking to get into cannabis photography, what would that be? And what are some of the skills that you would say that they should focus on before ever trying to like, you know, branch out there and and actually do it? I mean, I would encourage people to like, if you're at all interested, definitely just jump in with two feet. Like, you know, you don't have to have, you know, access to perfect material. Like I was just shooting nugs at the beginning and that gave me a good background to work up to the livestocks when I, you know, got access to them. Like I feel really lucky that things were on such a slow timeline for me when I was learning. It wasn't an industry yet. So I could take years and just fiddle around. Like there was in 2012, in San Diego, all the dispensaries got shut down. So there was like, there was a time where I didn't have access and I wasn't really shooting much of anything. And then things started changing, things started opening back up and there was, you know, access to a lot of different strains again. So I started shooting more again. 
you know, nowadays people can just start growing. You don't need a medical card in the States where it's, where it's wreck as long as they allow you to grow plants in, in your state. I know Washington doesn't, unfortunately, but yeah, I would say just jump in. And honestly, like you don't even need a, a background in photography. If, if you want to just, if, if there's a passion for you to want to take pictures of this plant, then that's going to drive you forward. Like the passion is probably the number one thing you need. And then, yeah, just, just be curious and just keep, keep exploring, keep messing around. Like I, I'm only at where I'm at photography wise, because I would experiment and make mistakes. And then when something didn't work, I would be like, why didn't that work? And, you know, go down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out why and, you know, watch YouTube tutorials and try and further my skill set and then go try again and just repeating mistakes and learning and uh, incorporating what I learned just over and over and over and over and over again is what got me to where I'm at today. So just stay curious and keep messing around. Yeah. As I've said before to many people on the show, it's, it's that direct experience that you can't replicate, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to go through, you have to go through the grind to be able to, to get somewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the word, actually, I don't remember if you said it was uninteresting or in regards to shooting hash in some senses, like the picture wasn't visually interesting. What would you say for you are the two most important factors in creating a powerful image? Well, first of all, I'd say trichomes being intact is the first thing that needs to be there. I mean, it doesn't, you're shooting like if your subject is a bug or something on the plant or like a hummingbird or something, like then trichomes aren't as important. But if you're shooting macros of the plant, trichomes being intact is probably the number one thing. Um, and then B, probably color. If there's interesting coloring happening on the plant, that's something that I definitely myself like go, go towards. Like uh, if there's like when I'm selecting a strain, certain times I'll go for the one that has an interesting color on, on the top, as opposed to one that looks more standard or something. And then I can't always do that. Cause a lot of the times the grower wants a, a represent representative kind of like the average look, not average, but like if only 10% of the plants turned purple, you know, I shouldn't be shooting that one to represent what they're, what the customer right. is going to be ending up with. So if the plant is colorful, color is definitely a, a major factor. Um, and then the other thing is uh, trying to deal with the limitations of stacking. So I try and shoot certain areas where I know that it's going to, stack right if there's too much depth or separation or i know that there's going to be like halos behind certain things i'll try and shoot it at the right angle that i know is going to stack properly okay um so i'd say those are the three three main things i look for and looking for a good image and i mean obviously in all that you're also keeping in mind composition i suppose well, for sure, composition. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, but that's 
which is tricky at that level. Yeah, it's really tricky to explain. Like, there's, I've been shooting for over 20 years. I mean, in a bunch of different aspects. Like, I've done photojournalism and like off road racing and astrophotography and, you know, the studio lighting is new. Um, I learned that for cannabis. So, yeah, the composition is just something that just, happens i just i know it when i see it so it's uh, saying like you know rule of thirds or you know this or leading line like what there's a whole bunch of stuff that i'm thinking about and i don't know if i could put that into words it's just it's just experience and i know it when i see it yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I guess it's what people would call the the eye, right? Like you're mm-hmm. you're looking at it your way, and and that's kind of your your unique way of looking at it. So, yeah, I, I totally sure. get that. But yeah, I, I think it's good, you know, for people that that might be interested in in getting to this into the future or, or now or whatever to to like I said, you know, hear from one of the top guys and and see what what's on your mind when you're shooting. Um. Dude, I appreciate you hanging out with me. I know we've been talking for a long time. I think in part it's just because I've been having fun. Hopefully you have too. Yeah, this has been super fun. I could, we could go for another hour, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll, I'll start winding it down for sure, man. I, I have a few more things that I want to ask. But uh, yeah, you know, you, I've, I've heard you talk about getting a camera when you were eight or nine years old. I'm curious where that push came from. Was that your own interest or... I would say, yeah. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, like from the first second my dad put a camera in my hands, it wasn't like I had to have a camera in my hands for every point past that. Like in my early, early years, it was kind of like here and there kind of thing. Um, I remember when we were going on family trips as I was a little older, maybe like 12 years old, I want to say that was when we got the first like digital camera. Uh, it wasn't actually our first digital camera. It was like, it was the first one that was like decently good. It had like zoom and like the megapixel count was decent enough that you could actually print them. Um, I mean, I remember with the first, the very first digital camera we had, I started like taking pictures at assemblies in sixth grade and they would end up in like the school paper but, uh, but yeah, with that first, like good quality digital, I remember my dad had bought it for a family trip and I just ended up using it the whole time and <laughs> just like wouldn't give it up. And, um, that's probably where it really started. And then I, when we got our first digital SLR, um, it was the Pentax ISTD. It was, I think it was six megapixels. And, uh, that was where it, where I really started going nuts. I think that was, I can't remember if I started shooting off-road racing with that camera or if I got my first Canon. But once, once we got that first digital SLR, that was it. I was shooting pictures of everything and yeah, that's really what started it. Yeah. That's definitely one of the benefits to shooting digitally is just that like, right. Depending on obviously Back then, spaces on cards and stuff weren't probably great. But, you know, nowadays you can dump thousands and thousands and thousands of images into your computer. And uh, it's oh, yeah. unlike film, right? Where, like, you have to be so much more careful. And in a way, it's, it was so much more costly, you know? And 
that's one of the weird questions that I have for you is if things were still analog, could you be creating the images that you are now? I mean, the easy answer is no, but I mean, you, I mean, you basically have to shoot your stacks on film and then scan them in and then stack them. And I mean, you, it depends on what year. Cause like I was using Photoshop when I was eight years old too, but I know that it probably didn't have the stacking ability that it does now. So it's, it'd be a matter of like, where were the features added right. along the way? It's, I'm sure you could do it with film if you had enough like patience, <laughs> especially today. Um, but back then, I don't know if you, if you could physically stack it. I don't know when the stacking software came about. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, that that's the kind of weird part about it is like, is it about the, the camera or also it's it, a lot about it is just this post-processing power. And like you For said, sure. I mean, when you were eight years old, Photoshop already existed, but, you know, maybe some of these plugins or, or whatever it is that are being used to stack, uh, it just wasn't there yet, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and there was one, uh, I think it was Robert Clark. Um, I know Todd McCormick has been doing it for a really long time too, but there were people shooting like Trico macros in the eighties and nineties. You know, it's, it's crazy to see those pictures, you know, it's same, same trichomes, but, um, it's just, we've come so far and like shout out to those guys that were doing it back then and completely different, you know, legality climate. And then with, with film and I'm sure the lenses weren't near what we have today, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like huge shout out to those guys that paved the way. Yeah, man. And I mean, he's, he wasn't like a tricone photographer as far as I know, but I'm a big fan of Mel Frank's and his Mel work. Frank, that was, that was the guy. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You know, he, uh, he, I saw he had like an art exhibition not long ago and, and really that's what those images are to me, you know, because it's like you said, it, it was a, it's a different, it was a different climate and he was going out there and like documenting this in, in a very like uh, artistic, almost like sensible way, you know? So uh, I'm all and about those, that. Some of those pictures are all we have to like look mm-hmm. back at some of these super old strains that just aren't around anymore. For sure. No, I agree, man. Answering the question that everybody asks you, what kind of camera do you use? <laughs> the Canon 5DSR is my, my main studio camera, uh, 50 megapixels. It's a beast in the studio, but uh, that's pretty much the area where it's a beast. If you, if you go above like ISO 400, the grain is just so bad that it's pretty much like a studio only camera for me. Um, I have a, a Canon uh, 5D Mark IV for my other stuff that I shoot, like astrophotography and just general, you know, out and about stuff. Right. Yeah. So the 50 megapixel is, like you said, basically a studio camera for you, which is crazy to hear. Like you started, or like your second real DSLR was like six yep. megapixels, <laughs> 50. I mean, do you feel at some point? You know, from my understanding, I suppose, is like the higher the megapixels, obviously the more raw information you're able to have on these files. And and again, that translates into like this visual detail of a photograph. But, you know, at some point, is it overkill? (laughs) I mean, 
Potentially. I mean, it's overkill for Instagram. Like for sure. Yeah. Like it, you really need, you need to print it out on like the size of a wall to like really get the full, you know, to really take it in. I mean, you can see it on a computer screen, but it only gets to so big and like, like the, if you can print them out big that it, it's hugely key. And on Instagram, like you can crop one of, one of these 50 megapixel pictures, like 10 to 20 times. And you know, it's, it's, they're all standalone Instagram posts just because there's so much quality there. And I mean, looking at it on a tiny little phone screen only goes so far, but that's the way most of the, most of it's consumed. So it's interesting. Yeah, for sure, man. And you know, you're right. It's, it really comes down to like the printing because that's, that's the whole objective is to have all that information to be able to make a massive size print. And I'm curious, like if you've ever done that. Yeah. Well, so a lot of the clients I work with are do that kind of stuff. So the, I mean, I've printed at, I think it's 30 by 40 was the biggest canvas print I've done and okay. they look amazing. But at, uh, at some of these trade shows, my clients have done like, 10 by 10 foot like backgrounds for their booths and sometimes even bigger than that. And those look insane. Like if you can just like do a wall of like trichomes or like the tip of a cola, like Humboldt seed company had, had a, like a macro of a a tip of a cola at Humboldt or at uh, Emerald cup last year and just looked insane. So um, yeah, printing them up like massively large is the way to go. Yeah, that's totally cool, man. I can totally envision, like, instead of being at a trade show, but, like, actually have, like, photographic prints made of these and just have these massive, in, like, almost like an art gallery setting would be amazing, you know? I mean, we, we actually rented out an art gallery when, when the, uh, the first Green book came out. So it was, like, 2014, and uh, uh, Colorado had just legalized. So um, author, it was the author of the book's idea, but basically rented out a gallery in downtown Denver, printed up a bunch of huge, uh, at this time it was all just nugs, um, right. but printed out a bunch of nugs and put them up in this art gallery and just had people come down for the, uh, the book release party. Um, that's actually where I met Schwale. He came out, gifted me some uh, Girl Scout cookies and some, uh, I think it was Gorilla Glue. But just insane. Like if we go back to talking about taking care of and not damaging trichomes, like I shot that uh, Girl Scout cookies and it was just coated, even though it had been in a little plastic bag when he gave it to me, but yeah, it was still, still coated. But yeah, that, that gallery was super fun. It was super cool to meet Schwale. And then I also met uh, a couple other growers there that I still talk, talk to on Instagram. Yeah, that's really cool, man. Um, yeah. But, a whole a whole gallery of trichomes I think would be cooler, man. <laughs> oh, I 100% agree. <laughs> We're going to have to do that someday. Um, you know, talking about, again, this, this massive scale, uh, one thing that I saw that I wanted to quickly ask about is seeing disease, seeing things such as powdery mildew or bugs or residuals on plants. Is that common? I mean, it's not that common. You know, I guess it's also because you're working with like really good material, but... For sure. But I mean, you definitely see PM from time to time. 
like a lot, I work with a lot of outdoor or light depth growers. So mold can set in on theirs. Um, you know, bugs are, you know, I'd say PM and mold are more, more common than, than a lot of bug infestations. I mean, you'll see fly, flies and stuff and like, that's decently common, but like russet mites, I've only seen a handful of times. And usually it's like after I've already shot the stack right. and, uh, and they show up as a little like dotted line through the picture. Yeah. Um, or once, once I'm stacking it and then I'll be like, what's that? And I'll go through the, these, the source photos and you can see them like moving between pictures. So that's never fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean with, with PM and mold, like I've shot some where it's like just at the very beginning, like you only be able to see a couple of spots here and there, but it's everywhere. Like you shoot it at the macro level in a spot where you can't see it and you can see, like I've, I need to do it a little bit more to be absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure I've captured like a, a PM spore that's like really young and it's just starting to like start to take over. It looks right. almost like a little spider. It's like almost a little thing with like eight legs that go out in every direction. And I've seen those at, different stages of growth somewhere they're like really young others where it's like spreading out through trichome heads or trichome stalks usually those little tendrils will like wrap around stalks and like keep growing so once it's kind of taken over i don't it's like it's there especially i mean mold is the same kind of thing just a little differently it's more like a web and like mold up close is pretty fascinating but it's like kind of everywhere. If it's in one place, it's, it's going to start to take over. You'll see it really, really up close. You'll start to see it just starting to start, but you can't see it with your eyes. I mean, <laughs> going back to uh, like noticing things and then you start to see them all over the place on past work. I had a, uh, one of those nugs from that gallery show hanging in my living room and one day I was just like, oh my God, that's, that's mold on there at the <laughs> bottom. <laughs> and like, once I saw it, I, I couldn't unsee it. And I was like, I smoked that. Like I bought that nugget in a dispensary and I smoked it. Um, we all have, man. Oh yeah. Like I've shot bong bowls before I've smoked them. And I've been like, oh wow, there's a lot of hairs in here. And like, <laughs> yeah. Pull out fibers and stuff. And I'm like, we've, I've smoked so much mold and PM probably and just had no idea. But yeah, I had a, a nug hanging on my wall with mold in it. <laughs> had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> like you said though, is it because you weren't looking for it and, and you weren't, your eye wasn't like familiar almost to it, you know? So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Once how that happens, once you've trained your eye, it's kind of start to see things more and more. Yeah. And since we're talking about again, at, at, at this scale, Talk to me about the different shapes of trichomes that you've seen. So those are, let's see. So so the biggest shape differentiator is the stock. So you'll see short stocks and medium stocks and super long stocks. Like classic purple punch is a a long stocked uh, variety. Um, Just huge stocks. And I think that's one of the reasons why Purple Punch looks like has such bag appeal. Because I mean, people are like, oh, it's so, so frosty. But right. I, you're just seeing 
stocks because stocks are the same color as heads and there's tons of that kind of clear cellular material and you can't differentiate it with your eyes. So it, it looks, it looks dank, but it's mostly stocks. So, so that's, that's something that shows up in a lot of purple punch crosses. And let's see, I mean, the coloring, like the, uh, the purple in, in the heads, that kind of polka dotted look, that's super, super rare. Um, you'll get, you'll get reds. Like if, if, uh, if it's a purple leaf, that purple or red can sometimes like travel up into the stock. So you'll see a lot of reds in the bases of stocks. Sometimes I've seen reds go like all, like the whole stock is like blood red and the head's still clear or like not, not the red in the base, like that uh, star pupil. The star pupil was the first time I'd seen reds like in the middle of the stock without coming up from the base. Right. Um, you also, or you also see like, like the scent that like trichome stocks have like the outer cells and then there's inner cells too. Those inner cells usually don't turn red, but I've seen some where the inner cells will turn red and you've got this kind of like column of red coming up through this, you know, surrounded by clear stocks or clear uh, cells in the stock. I've seen it where instead of the purple polka dots in, in the actual secretory cells themselves, uh, it'll just be purple in where that that uh, like orange slice I was talking about earlier, where yeah. it, it like meets the head, right? Um, and those other secretory cells aren't purple. Um, I've seen heads that are like elongated; it almost looks like a bean sitting on top of the trichome stalk. And then there's like the whole world of double-headed, double-stalked, triple-headed. Yeah. <laughs> then, yeah, no, it's so cool, man. Like it it just like you said, there I think there's so much to learn still, you know? Yeah, and, and then and then there's what we haven't even discovered yet, or what hasn't even been bred into strains yet. Like uh Schwale's been doing a really good job of exploring trichomes from other plants. I haven't done that, but I've like looked at like research articles where they talk about tomato trichomes. I've shot hops trichomes those are completely different looking but tomato trichomes are are similar but i guess there's some that have like a quad head it's almost like if you took four heads and kind of squished them together so it looked like there were kind of four circles popping out on either side but it's one blob so yeah i mean there's it's it's interesting having only really explored one plant Mm-hmm. super up close and there's there's so much more i mean trichomes in general take on so many more different forms that i haven't even explored cannabis is just keeping me too busy and there's so much to explore and learn on it like yeah <laughs> yeah no <laughs> too it's, busy. it's it's true like you said uh, about shrill i saw the other day i think you just posted like a cucumber yep. you know trichome or whatever but yeah it like you said, you guys are just focused on one and, and you said in the 10 years you've been doing this, it still keeps you interested, you know, and, and all these variations and all these new things that you see at that, at that magnification is, is pretty interesting, man. Yeah, super interesting. I wanted to talk a little bit about these rupturing trichomes or trichomes that are just like oozing out resin mm-hmm. on their own. How often do you see that? 
So are you talking about like like the one I captured in the in the stack spin where it like popped on its own or like the the like uh kind of what I touched on before about uh, when you get to that amber stage where they like I've heard about them popping on their own. Yeah, so I guess about the like the type though that you captured where it's essentially almost like popping on its own or okay. it, it almost like it outgrows its cuticle. So I think this is an area where I don't, I haven't explored enough to know. Like I, that one that I captured popping on its own was during the, the dry out process. So okay. I'm assuming that like, I, I feel like if you left a water balloon out in the sun, it would eventually like get to a point where that rubber can no longer hold in the water that's pushing out on it because it gets you know, too brittle. I'm assuming that that's kind of what's happening with, with the trichome heads. But then again, it's only one out of thousands that are in that particular frame. You know, I have no idea what is actually causing it because it, it's clear that if you dry, it's not the dry out process that's popping it because I've got plenty of shots of dried buds with, you know, completely covered in perfectly intact heads. It could be maybe like it didn't grow all the way or there's something on the backside that was in the dry out process, like maybe a systole of hair, like came in contact with it and popped it. Like who knows? It's, it's one of those things that I got to explore more. And honestly, like I want to do some trichome growing time lapses. I just, don't know how to do that because the plant is growing and moving all the time. That's like a, a dream of mine, but I, it's been a dream of mine for years. I've, <laughs> I've tried a couple times to do time lapses, but I've never seen any trichomes doing anything special in those time lapses. It's just the plant kind of moving. I really want to capture a trichome growing, or I don't even know if the head forms first and then the stalk pushes the head off of the leaf or if the stalk forms first and then the head forms on top of the stalk, I think it's probably the first one, but I don't know for sure. So that's another one that I want to explore. And and there's just so much more to learn. Like I feel like we're only barely scratching the surface. I agree. And I'd love to see a time-lapse that had the ability to show the growth, you know? And I mean, what you're saying about, the head growing first seems more plausible because of the idea of having these bulbous trichomes that remain on the surface of the plant. And instead of being pushed out by a stalk that mm-hmm. later grows, you know? Yeah. Or, I mean, do they all start out the same and then differentiate? I mean, it, yeah, the that's system looks, look totally different, but I mean, I've shot like young plants where, you can clearly see a bunch of like balls on the surface of the leaf. So that's really what led me to believe maybe that the head forms first and then the stalk forms and pushes the head off. But I've never seen any evidence of that. So I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? Someday. (laughs) Someday for sure. I I think it'll get figured out, man. And it'll be pretty amazing to see when, when somebody is actually able to put that together, you know? Yeah. It's a tough question, but if you had to pick one favorite cannabis photographer, who would that be? 
Oh man. That's a really tough one. Cause I'm going to automatically alienate 99% of the cannabis photographers. Um, <laughs> That's how the hash makers feel when I, when I ask <laughs> my question. Um, man, it's so tough. I there's three that are popping into my head that, and it's all for different reasons. Probably Schwale because he was one of the first ones that pushed me into the macro world. I was really inspired by his work early on. And when I first rented the MPE, I was talking with him and he was giving me tips and kind of going back and forth. So I'd say Schwale for, for pushing me into the macro side then Constant Concentrates is another one. He lived in San Diego and we got to link up and he got super into the macro side and was, was the one that pushed me uh, into the microscope objective side. He kind of just went off the deep end and like got a bunch of microscope stuff. And when I could finally get, get to that point and could afford to get some microscopes, like I went back to him and was like, yo, you know, can you help me out here? Like, where, where should I start? And, uh, he was super integral to me getting, getting started on the microscope side. And then video macro is the third. He was the first one that really was crushing the stacked spins, just doing insane motion work up close. And, uh, he was the one that pushed me into the stacked spins. Really inspiring. So those are the three that are coming to mind, but, there's so many more out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't name everybody, but that's it's an interesting way to see as to why you respect their work and kind of how they influenced your, your work as well. So that's cool, man. And if you had to choose a non-cannabis photographer as a favorite? Uh, right now, the first one's popping into my head is Curtis Morgan. He's this... I mean, he's a film director. He just like helped create the uh, the video that Sony just used to release the A7S three. But he does insane astrophotography, like fifty thousand pictures of the moon stacked together into one. Just insane stuff that like melts my brain thinking about how he's creating some of these some of these pieces of work. But I'd say it kind of my favorite kind of changes based on what I'm looking at or what I'm into at, at that time. And, and right now my, uh, my kind of hobby outside of cannabis photography is astrophotography. So I'm looking at a lot of, a lot of astrophotographers and I'd say he's my favorite right now. Curtis yeah, Morgan on, on Instagram. Very cool, man. I'll, I'll have to check it out myself. And I, I've seen that you've been doing some shooting up in the, in the sky. <laughs> yeah. It's like the opposite of macro. Like I get, super super close on one side and then on the other side i'm like shooting galaxies and stuff that are <laughs> light years away <laughs> my gear is still pretty primitive on that side but i want to get some some telescopes and kind of push that a little bit further but i'm never gonna have like a hubble telescope or anything like that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah well hey both worlds are are still definitely mysteries man so <laughs> for cool. sure um, if you had to put a percentage on the amount of work that you do, whether it's the 360s, the zoom shots, 
what's the most popular thing for people wanting to hire you? I'd say the 360 livestocks and the macros. I'd say most, most of the growers, when I go in and do a 360 livestock, I'm also doing a macro or two at the same time. Sometimes it'll be just the livestock. Sometimes it'll be just macros. I'd say it's probably 60% livestock 360s and 40% macros. And then, okay. um, yeah, the hyper zooms are a really small percentage and the stack spins are, are another really small percentage. The stack spins I'm starting to do a little bit, little bit more of. It's starting to get uh, a little bit more traction here and there, but it's, I've only done them on like local grows or stuff that I can take back um, to my house slash studio to shoot right. just because I have to leave it running. I mean, I'm, I'll do as many, many stack spins as I can before the flower is degraded to a point where it's, it doesn't look good anymore. So it's usually like two days, three days. So right. I can get like two to four stack spins in. But if I needed to do that, like for a grow in California, I don't really know. I'd have to leave my gear there overnight with it running. And, you know, because right. it's like 10 hours from start to finish. Sometimes it's quicker, sometimes it's longer. And you have to limit all vibration, all airflow. You've got to like make sure that uh, you're not running out of water with the, the plant sitting in. Like, there's so many factors and I don't know if I could do that at someone's facility. Cause it's like for 10 hours straight, you gotta, you gotta make sure all these things are the exact same. And it's semi easy to do in my house, but, but it's going to be a challenge doing it out and about. So we'll see what happens, but uh, that's, that's going to be the challenge with more, more stack spin interest. Yeah. That, I can see how definitely that would be challenging working on location outside of your house. Yeah, I mean, but the, with the 360s and the macros, it's easy or semi-easy because it's like 15 minutes of letting the camera do its thing, but not 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and does that uh, pristine flower then become head stash for you? Uh, very rarely. Usually I have to leave it at the grow, but if, if, you know, it depends on the legality where I'm at. So in a perfect world, I can take everything home and then dry it out myself and, and get to try it. But uh, most of the time it doesn't work that way, which it, it bums me out because I like having my, my own personal like palette and my, my flavor library. Like I've seen so many strains now that I haven't actually gotten to try. But back in the day when I was buying the lot or buying the, the nugs from the dispensary, I get to shoot it and try it right. and, you know, smell it and just kind of, get to experience it on my time. Uh, but now with all the livestocks, it's, it, it doesn't always get to be that way. So, but when it does, that's, that's, that's ideal. <laughs> <laughs> Your favorite three hash makers. Oh man, that's tricky. First is gotta be taste of Cascadia slash six star society, just because he's, really one of the ones that opened my eyes to the solvent lists and the hash world just in general hanging out with him and getting to try the he's got his amazing cut of og pie breath and 
the first time I met him, he gave me, uh, it was two different finos of it. And I actually still have the nug. <laughs> One of those <laughs> that he gave me that every couple of years, I'll like pop a couple trichomes and yep, sure enough, it still smells that way. But, uh, wow. um, but yeah, trying, trying that strain over the years as he's dialed it in and like being able to try the 90 U versus the 120 versus the 150 at different times at different cycles. It's like, it's really helped me put in perspective the differences between all the different, you know, consistencies and, and micron sizes and to hear it from a hash maker. Cause like the 150, you know, I feel like it's the most flavorful. It's got this like extra creamy vibe that the others don't. And like the 150 normally doesn't end up in a dispensary or a place where the average person could try it. So it's, it was super fascinating just being able to try all those different consistencies and seeing the flavor notes and, and kind of hearing from him uh, what he's getting from it all too. So it's gotta be, gotta be him. Number one. Oh man. Let's see. I mean, number two that's just popping into my mind is Bo from Bo's Nose Nose. He's a hash maker up here in Oregon. Another one that I've gotten to try a ton of different flavors from, but mostly on the rec market. Um, just buying them in, in shops. And a lot of those are, are rosins, but he dropped a uh, Talimon 120U and that hash was amazing. I still have some in my fridge. I'm, I'm savoring it. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I think I actually smelled that at the Ego Clash and it it just, the, the smell was amazing and my friend ended up getting a little and I did it and then I was like, repented later. I was like, oh, I should have. But yeah, that profile yeah. was awesome, man. Yeah. It, I mean, I don't remember how old it is now. It's it's not super old, but it's, it's getting there uh, and it still tastes like day one, just amazing. Let's see. Man, there's so many that are popping into my head. It's so hard to choose. I think this is the hardest part of the interview typically for people. <laughs> oh, man. I don't know. The other one that's popping into my head is is simply Adam. He's he was one of the ones early on that I got to hang out with and he got just talking to him about hash and it really opened my eyes to a lot of the hash. I mean, he, I'm pretty sure he was air drying at that point. Um, and him and Matt rise are, uh, I got to try some of Matt's hash as well. And it was interesting trying stuff, not from a freeze dryer, um, and seeing the differences there and honestly shooting the differences between a freeze dryer. I got to say, I like the freeze dryer more just because it leaves the heads intact. Like when you're microplaning them, you're, you're breaking the heads apart from what I saw under the lens. Um, so just, I don't know. I like that caviar look and then just throwing another one in there. Since talking about caviar looks, uh, Cuban, He's on the dry sift side, but I've shot and shot some of his um, collabs with the village, and then uh, 
I've got some of the recent Jay Plant speaker collab waiting for me. I just got to get it from Jay and I'm going to get that under the lens. Um, lucky but, guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very lucky. But uh, yeah, it, it's just like straight caviar. It's just perfection. It's amazing. Yeah, that 99% um, sift is, is special, it's, especially when you see it photographed at that scale. Like you said, you yeah. talked earlier about like the cleanliness and, and people putting it up to the test and like, that's like the ultimate, the ultimate test. Man. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And I mean, the flavor comes through. It's, it's, I love seeing the differences out there. So freeze dryer versus not. And then the, uh, the dry sift side is, is super fascinating. I think the dry sift side is a little bit more stable as far as shooting goes. Yeah. Um, I could see that, but, but I haven't shot as much as I have on the bubble side. So it'll, I'm really excited to get this, the, the J collab under the lens and see what that's like. Cause I, yeah, I tried the cool. flower and I tried the, the other hash, uh, Somnus mind, uh, rosin collab from this year. And that stuff is just out of control. Yeah. That's somebody's stuff who I've really been wanting to try is uh Jay's. And are you going to be photographing the GMO or the, or the sour D or both? I, I don't know. Hopefully both. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> They're both standouts in their own own right. Yeah. It's like, do you want to be paranoid or do you want to be knocked out? <laughs> <laughs> a little of both. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it depends on the time. Well, cool, man. So last question. If you could hear from somebody on the show, hash maker or, you know, surrounding hash, who would it be? I gotta say, I prepared for this question a little bit because I went through and looked at <laughs> who you've already had on because I wanted to make sure I didn't say somebody that that's already been on the show. Um, and my my first person in my mind was uh, Taste of Cascadia, but you've already had him on. So um, yeah, we've had Scott on, and this is a plug for our Patreon. But you know, if you want to check Taste of Cascadia's interview out, it's on there. So yep. So I gotta say, Bo. Um, Bo's nose. He's he's an Oregon guy, and just puts out amazing, amazing hash, mostly rosin. But he has dropped hash on the uh, on the Oregon rec scene, and it's super cool to see that. I want to see more of that. But uh, but yeah, I, I would say Bo, and he's just yeah, an that's awesome, cool, awesome chill guy. I definitely want to talk to him, man. I, I, I keep up with their work. They, they recently put out some cantaloupe haze or something that I was like, man, I love to try that. Cause, uh, you, something you don't really see in, in solventless form a lot, but yep. Yeah. We'll see. We'll, we'll talk to Bo when we can, man. It's all just a matter of, uh, having the time to talk to everybody, but for sure, yeah, it's been a blast talking to you. I've had a really good time. Again, I'm super appreciative of you coming on. If you want yeah, man, to follow, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I, I just want to say thanks for having me on. This is, this has been a blast. Yeah. I don't normally do these, but, uh, every time I end up doing one, it's, it's a, it's a lot of fun. So th yeah, thanks again for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to follow Eric again on Instagram, he's at eric.nugshots and the other account is at nugshots, which I've seen you've kind of started re reposting on. So check them both out. And I, yeah, again, man, thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. 
If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.